Welcome to Rogue Bogues, my journey. It's going to be episode four, University of Utah, freshman year. A lot to get through this one. We'll go for a little while. We've got a few guests that are going to join us along the way. So let's get rogue. So we start off the start of this podcast basically by filling a few blanks from episode three. So in episode three, I spoke about flying back to, to Australia, getting my visa, and then going to the University of Utah. One tidbit that I forgot to mention was when I was in Europe after the World Under-19 Championships, won a gold medal, was MVP, played really well, kind of name was on the map around the world as the next big thing from, from the junior level. When I had gone to Croatia for a holiday with my family, I was approached by three or four European clubs. Two of them were serious. One of them was Tabona Zagreb, former club of Drazen Petrovic. So I was well familiar with them as I was a big fan of Drazen's and everyone kind of knows that and um, it was well publicized. So there was Tabona and then there was, I think, Panathinaikos was the, the next biggest offer. They were both around about a million dollars USD a year. So I'd gone and, and met with Sabona at a fancy hotel there in Zagreb, Croatia. They basically tried to schmooze me and, and played on everything they could. They had me meet Drazen Petrovic's mother. They had me go to the, the, the museum that they had for Drazen at the time, which was right next to their arena. They, you know, they tried to get some, hit some chords with me to try and get me to, to sign there. And look, I gave it some thought. I never really seriously considered it, but you know, you see a bunch of zeros on paper more than I ever thought I'd have in my lifetime. And, you know, you, you give it a bit of thought, obviously. And it was um, it was tough to turn down in the sense of it's a lot of money that I never thought I'd have a chance to make. But thankfully, I had, you know, good people around me, a good family, and was consulted that basically this the money will come. Be patient and everything will come. And the other thing was I gave my word to the University of Utah. I gave my word that I'd come and play there, whether it be a year, two years, four years, whatever, and that meant a lot to me as well. I don't like being a person that gives my word on something or doing something for somebody or, or whatever it is and then not fulfilling that um, That kind of – that bothers me a little bit. So that was just part of my psyche and, and it kind of always has been. If I say I'm going to do something, I'll generally do it. So that was basically as I left Croatia, I had that that offer flying back and never really gave it much thought after that. It came up a little bit down the line which you'll hear about on this episode. But yeah, just a, just a small little tidbit, you know, 18-year-old kid, a 19-year-old kid getting a million-dollar offer to go somewhere and, and turning it down. They were um, pretty distraught about it. They thought they had me. They, they, they thought they struck a chord and hit the emotional side of things. And, and then, you know, the other thing with European offers that I learned early and, and the agent I had at the time kind of somewhat told me was a lot of times not, they weren't worth the paper they were written on. You might have a million dollar USD deal and you start the season three and 10 and you're having a horrible year. You might get half of that. You know, you might not get all of it. Monday morning comes, they've missed your, your paycheck, hasn't hasn't hit your account. And Shane Heal used to tell a funny story about when he played in Greece. He played for a, a cellular-dwelling team, I believe, that were close to relegation. I'm not sure how that all finished, but he remembers going into the office of the GM and saying, mate, I, I didn't get my uh, I didn't get my pay. It didn't come through. And he'd say, Avrio, 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 which meant, uh, I believe in Greek, it means tomorrow. And he'd then go in on Tuesday and get Avrio, Avrio, Avrio. <laughs> it got to a point where it was like, I'm just not even going to go in there. But almost every time his paycheck was due, it was late and severely late and he'd never get it on time. And that was the other thing. Like I knew if I sign for a million, I'm probably going to get 500 of it no matter what. And then the rest will be kind of you're hoping you get and i've got a lot of stories from uh, teammates of mine from australia that have played in europe that the contract 
you know, it wasn't worth the, the piece of paper it was written on at times. The, those numbers never eventuated that way. I had a teammate um, that his club went bankrupt mid-season, you know, so those things happen. And that also put my mind at ease a little bit about rejecting that offer. So anyway, we get to get to Australia, jump on the plane, go to the University of Utah. I touch on at the end of episode three about uh, coming down the escalators at Salt Lake International Airport, Salt Lake City, and not knowing who I'm meeting, not knowing what they look like, never met him before in my life. I see the coach, University of Utah jacket. That must be my guy. Say hello to him. It was Scott Garson, a, a video coach at the time of the University of Utah. He, he basically drives me back to the dorms. I think I landed at night, so couldn't really go out and meet people and get taken to the dorms straight away. And um, the way the dorms worked were I had a roommate that was, was one big room, uh, myself and another guy. His name was Ryan um, Wirch. And he was my roommate. He was from Wisconsin. And then the, the room next door to us was, I believe, Justin Hawkins and Stefan Zimmerman, two other freshmen. So it was two rooms within a big room and then a shared bathroom for all of us. And that was kind of the living quarters. And the good thing about the dorms were they were pretty new because they were built for the 2002 Winter Olympics, which were in Salt Lake. So we had a pretty pretty nice dormitory, but you still, you don't have your own room. You don't have kind of your own little perks and privacy. So that was a bit of, bit of an adjustment. But that was kind of my first foray into meeting meeting my teammates, and they'd already been there for three, four, five, six, you know, weeks because I'd had the world championship, so I didn't get there early in summer school and do all that like most of them did. So I kind of had to settle in and get used to things very, very quickly. But anyhow, training basically started off pretty easy. The NCAA rules permitted back then you could only do two hours of on court sessions per week leading into the official start date of the season. So once the start date starts, I think it was sometime in September, October, then you can do your regular team sessions. I think it was 20 hours a week max on court. So we can only do two. So it was basically broken up by 40 minute, three 40 minute sessions. And I don't believe you could have more than four or five people in your se- in your session with that particular coach. Then what would usually happen is after those sessions, we'd all meet on one court and play five on five. No coaches were meant to be there, but we knew they were recording the sessions. They'd watch the sessions later, all that kind of stuff. So it was basically open gym, five on five. We'd also have four weight sessions a week, which were quote, optional, unquote. So legally, we didn't have to do them as per NCAA rules because you can only do two hours of structured sessions. But if you didn't show up to those things, you're getting a call from a coach and getting cussed out. So we kind of, you know, did all that, which was fine. The The weight sessions were interesting because we were becoming a big football school at the time when I got there. We were known as a basketball school, but that, that kind of needle has turned where they're just as good in football now. And a lot of our weight sessions were just straight up meathead type football uh, lifts. That's changed a lot now in basketball where people have finally figured out that, you know, a linebacker, a linebacker or a, you know, whoever it is – a football player shouldn't be having the same lift as a basketball player and vice versa. And we don't need to be doing max bench press every session and trying to squat the whole gym. We need to be strong. We need to be lean. We need to be quick. And I think that wiry strength that we're seeing now, that's that's your prototypical basketball player in my opinion. So they were crazy. They were, they were you know, it was that whole, whenever someone was doing a personal best lift, it'd be the weight coach would, would get a metal bar and bang it against the cage and yell and scream and everyone would have to huddle around, which was okay in a way but it was real meatheady it was kind of more football orientated so i always got a kick out of that especially later on in my career once i figured out what worked for my body and what didn't and and obviously for a seven footer doing back squats with a loaded bar of 100 200 kilos is not the smartest thing to do because my technique is just not not ever going to be as good as a guy at six one you know i've got a lot of a lot of um long limbs and it's just something's going to go wrong on the way and holds me known end up having back issues later in my career so i'm not blaming anyone for that but it's just it all coincides with 
like I said, I think basketball's changed um, as far as doing doing lifts predicated for what kind of athlete you're aiming to build up. But class was was pretty easy for me. Funnily enough, they had a thing called a GPA for all the Australian followers, grade point average. It was a 2.0 was needed to maintain eligibility back then. A 2.0 would be a C equivalent. So a 4.0 is the best you can get. That's your the smartest guy in the class. 4.0, 3.0 is a B. 2.0 would be C-ish and then, then you go below that. But the NCAA had a rule if you didn't maintain a 2.0 throughout the season, you could be de- deemed ineligible to play in games. So what they would usually do is I had a teammate that got under it a little bit and he fell to like a 1.8 and then they give you a couple of weeks to get it back above, meaning doing extra study, uh, making sure you're handing all your stuff in on time. And then um, you'd be able to play. But if you fell under it for a long period of time, more than a couple of weeks, you'd be ineligible to play in the games. You could still train, still go to class. You just couldn't play in the games until that GPA went back above. And I guess the reason they put that in is a lot of schools recruit players and then just kind of, you know, they know they're not going to class and they didn't really care. And they knew they'd be there for a year or two and then get drafted in the NFL or the the NBA. So that kind of somewhat put a stop to that there's still ways to cheat it but um that put a stop to that but my gpa was fantastic my first year it was my first semester it was a 3.1 which is a bb plus and it was funny because because of the issue i had that i spoke about in episode three about coming over to university of utah where i got deemed ineligible by the ncaa it wasn't a great issue it was a credit issue i didn't have enough credits in a certain field of science that they just deemed my transcripts ineligible. So these coaches in, in the States thought I was a dumbass. So I would have um, class checks, which they kind of did for most freshmen, but they made sure they were checking on me. We can't afford to have this guy not not have a 2.0 or higher. We can't afford him ineligible. And not only that, you know, Coach Majerus would, would kick their ass if it happened. So I was getting class checks the whole first semester. And then I get my GPA, I get my report, and, and half the coaches are like, man, you did really well in school. I'm like, I, I didn't really – put that much effort in to be quite honest with you i just find it very very easy and i, I handed in everything i was there on time and, and do what i had to do and second semester because i'd got that 3.1 i didn't have to do study hall anymore so that first semester freshman uh, was mandatory you had to do study hall which was four sessions a week at about seven o'clock at night till about nine about two hours ish you come in you had access to advisors i mean they try to do everything they can for the athletes to make sure you know you're on a scholarship the last thing we need is for you not not to be able to play because of academics. So they try to help as much as you could. And so the second semester, I didn't have to do any of that. I stopped getting the class checks unless I was with a teammate that was getting class checked. So if I had a class with a teammate and he was getting class checked, then they'd be like, where's Bo? Why isn't he here? So I knew kind of strategically which classes to go to no matter what. And then I'd miss I'd miss classes a, a fair bit. Like I'd probably miss one out of four classes. So I'd go to 70, 70 75% of classes and – I had no issue. I'd just make sure that I wasn't a dumbass about it. I'd go there whenever we had a quiz in the curriculum, whenever we had a test, whenever we had um, group projects, whenever we had projects, anything due, I was always there. And I'd go to a few other other classes, but for the most part, I'd, I'd if I needed to sleep in or if I needed some some extra time to do some other things, I just wouldn't go to class. And um, I still managed to get a th- you know kept it at a three three point one. So I found school easy compared to Australia. Uh, Australian high school year 10, 11, which is the Third last year and the second last year of high school, we finished in year 12 in Australia. I felt felt like freshman year in college was equivalent to year 10, year 11 as far as how hard it was. So I kind of cruised through that. I had no real issues with school the whole time, passed with kind of flying colors. And that was basically it as far as school went. I, I, did, pr- I did a pre-business degree, so pretty easy stuff. I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do and I just ended up picking pre-business and it actually worked out well. But I wish I would have applied myself even more considering the path I'm, I'm taking off the court with different business things. But I caught up on all that with my own self-study. Halfway through, so halfway through first semester, 
I go and I get to move dorm rooms. So I was suffering from chronic migraines, which a lot of people that have followed my career would know. Um, I missed the fit, not a lot of NBA games. I've probably missed maybe five or six NBA games completely due to due to migraines. And for all the people out there who think a migraine is a headache, it is not. Um, and for the people that think, well, I went to work, I had a headache all day yesterday, I still went to work, it's, it's completely different. For me, I, I used to get these chronic things. I still do get them to this day. Um, they're a bit more, uh, they're not as frequent anymore. So by, by the frequency when I was younger, I'd get one a month almost. Now I'm down to you know maybe maybe five or six a year, which is good, but basically shuts down your body, lose vision, lose feeling in part of, part of my body, hands and that kind of stuff and start throwing up violently. And when I was younger, they'd last nine, 10, 11, 12 hours. And now that they kind of ease up a bit quicker. But anyway, long story short with all that stuff, I won't bore you with it. I ended up having to get my own room because I got a few migraines and I'm basically telling my roommate to shut up and he's trying to study with a light on or making noise and I kind of felt bad and you know he, he's just trying to study and do what he's going to do in the room but I'm in a position where I need absolute quiet and, and peace and quiet and dark room and all that kind of stuff so it just didn't work out. I got a couple of migraines early on and then basically went to the coaches and was like look I need my own room like this is I can't do this you know if I, if I get sick I need to go to a quiet place and and they, they ended up finding me my own room towards the end of that first semester which was in a whole whole different um, building from from where I was so I was moved away from there I move into an apartment where there's four bedrooms so there's two wings two bedrooms on each wing we all get our own bedroom lounge room in the middle and then each set of two bedrooms on their wing have their own bathroom so two bathrooms four bedrooms basic apartment and um i have three random people as roommates that i've never met before so two of them were these these asian kids from san jose the bay area actually funnily enough goes full circle i still talk to one of those guys to this day he's a massive warriors fan funnily enough and they were awesome they were um laid-back kids they basically all they did was 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 get high as fuck smoke weed study their ass off and play video games that was it nothing else and i assume that you know they all graduated and did very well in school but they were they come back from class study and then they'd be high <laughs> the rest of the day. So sometimes I'd just chill in the lounge room with them, making sure I didn't get any secondhand smoke, of course. But I'd stay with them and just chill out and talk shit with them. And they were they were pretty cool to hang out with. So that was all that was all good and fun. The third roommate kind of didn't hang with us at all, really. He was kind of a hermit. He'd stay in his room, wouldn't really come out much. He'd see him every now and then. He was a big gamer, so he'd play those, you know, a lot of shooting games, Counter-Strike and all that back then, I believe, online gaming. He'd play, you know, 10, 12 hour marathons wouldn't come out of his room the reason why i know is because my wall was against his desk my sorry where my bed was that wall was against his study desk where his computer was so all i would hear is machine gun fire like to you know two three four in the morning sometimes he had the speaker on the floor and all that kind of stuff so once a week i'd have to go in there and be like dude like can you turn you can you turn the shooting down man like i got i got weights at 7 a.m or 6 a.m i need to sleep so I had no issue with him, but I had, to get, I had to get into it with him a few times. And, and after like the third or fourth week, started getting a bit more fired up every time I had to go in there. And that was just something you dealt with. But um, an interesting story that came with that was he, I guess we had a roommate's friend come over from a different different dorm room. And um, I guess that something, something had happened between that kid and, uh, and the kid next door to me. And... Um, I don't know, there was some back and forth as he was walking out of his room, we will sit in the lounge room. Just not, nothing serious, a bit of, bit of back and forth. And um, I guess he said something as he was walking out and as he walked out of the door of the lounge room into the hallway, it's those self-closing doors, right? The, the heavy fire doors that close by themselves. And, you, you know, so as that door was closing, the door clicks shut. This dude, the friend of one of my roommates, he throws his set of keys 
kind of at the door, like, man, get the F out of here, you know, just like, I don't know, trying to be funny, you know, just that kind of reactive whatever. So the the keys make a big clunk on the door. So obviously the kid that was walking out, he would have heard as he's in the hallway, something hit the door, right? So the kid comes back maybe 20 minutes later. I don't know where he went. Maybe he went to get some food or whatever. He walks in. The keys were still on the floor. On the key ring, there's a, a, a decent-sized pocket knife, you know, something that's probably eight, nine centimeters. You know, your standard little pocket knife that has a, um, a bottle opener, a little blade, a nail file, one of those ones, right? Swiss Army knife, whatever it's called. So I guess this kid's like sees that, goes to his room, comes back out again. Keys are still there. Like we still haven't picked them up. We're still sitting there playing. I think we're playing Xbox at the time or PlayStation. He walks out, walks back out of the room. So then, about oh, I don't know, maybe 15, 20, 25 minutes later, we're still sitting there, haven't moved. We hear like boom, 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 boom on the door, on the apartment door. Which is as soon as you open it, it goes right into the lounge room. So we're like, what the hell's going on? We don't jump up quickly. We're like, what the hell's going on? Something strange. And within three or four seconds of that, the door barges open, and it's police. Guns out, guns drawn, pointed right at us, and they start yelling, "Put down the knife! Put down the knife!" And what are you, what are you guys talking about? No one's got a knife. There's not, no one's got a knife here. Put down the knife! Put down the knife! Just shut up! Shut up! Listen! Put your hands up in the air! Blah 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 blah. So we're like, you know, I've never had a gun pulled on me. Never really felt a gun. My grandfather had a rifle back in the day until that got taken off off all Australian citizens uh, when they had the recall in the in the 90s. But I was young at that point. Never really handled a gun, so I'm staring down the barrel of a gun. And you're like, man, what the hell is going on here? So we end up talking to the police, and they they then see the keys and the and the uh, the pocket knife on the floor. Who's is this? Who's is this? And the guy goes, oh, it's it's mine. It's like, well, we've got reports that someone's tried to, you know, someone's got a knife and making threats and blah 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 blah. So I guess this kid's called the police and said, you know, they've attempted to throw a knife at me or stab me or whatever. I don't know what the hell he said because the cops came in, their guns drawn and. That was my kind of first welcome to that 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 apartment building, and it was um it was pretty scary. Like I'm not, I'm not gonna lie to you, I've never had never had a gun pointed at me, and you know we all know that cops are on edge as it is over there in the US with with everything going on. So um, back then that was that was a pretty scary time, but an interesting story nonetheless. Something that was kind of a welcome to college, I guess. I ended up buying a bicycle. That was my mode of transport at the University of Utah. There was a a bus network, but I kind of. Took that when I could. There was a tram network. If you wanted to go to the city, uh, to be honest, I hardly ever left the campus. So I bought this bike from, um, I don't know, Walmart or something, a couple hundred bucks, 150 bucks, and, and that was my mode of transportation. And so one day I am, my route to the Huntsman Center, um, the University of Utah campus, by the way, is at the top of a hill from downtown. So you think downtown, you go up this hill, and at the top of that is the university, the massive campus. So beautiful part of um, the world. Not just Salt Lake City in America, but fantastic place. It was a, it was a blessing to be able to go to class every day and look down upon the city and, and you're in a valley and you see mountains and it was really, really nice. And once I'd left there, I'd realize how much I missed seeing mountains, but you don't realize it when you're in it, right? But um, so my route to, to school would be down, basically down a hill from the dormitories on a main road and then turn into the parking lot of the, of the arena, the Huntsman Center. So I fly down the hill. They drop, we drive on the right side of the road in, in the U.S., so I'm riding my bike, I get to that main road and I have to kind of cross to the traffic light, turn right, and then I have to turn left to go into the um, the parking lot of the arena. So then I have to kind of go on the left turning lane and then I'm waiting. So there's two lanes there and traffic's basically backed up from that, that traffic light. So they're, they're kind of waving me through because they just backed up on my bike. The third lane is a turn lane to go into the Huntsman Center. So it's not, it's not to go anywhere else, but Right, but for, once you pass kind of the Huntsman Center, that lane then 
becomes a lane to turn at the at the traffic light down the road, but it's not meant to be a third lane to drive straight through. So anyhow, I I get to the, the intersection and there's two cars in both those lanes that can go straight and they're waving me through, go ahead, mate, go ahead. So I start pedaling, get on my bike and pedaling, pedaling that third lane. A car goes straight through the that lane instead of turning into, into the parking lot and just T-bones me on a bicycle. I don't know how I, I didn't end up in hospital. I don't know how I came out of it with some scratches and gashes on my on my right leg that was on the side of the car. I had saw the car at the last minute and as I got hit, I kind of jumped with the bike, if that makes sense. So I kind of absorbed the blow and then and then landed back on the bike standing up. The bike had been basically destroyed. The the wheel, I think it was my rear wheel, had been completely bent. So it was like facing the ground so it wouldn't even spin. It's parallel with the ground and um all the rim was. And so I basically just picked up the bike, chucked it over my shoulder, pissed off, like looking at the car like, man, what the hell? Walk into the parking lot. I saw a couple of cars pull in and say, you, you need to exchange details. Like the guy hit you, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Not a big deal. The, the guy gets out of his car. I think it was a lady actually. Um, and she exchanges details with me and I ended up getting to practice. Some of the coaches kind of saw what happened, asked what happened. I said, oh, I was hit, hit by a car. I can't, I don't have any way to get home because my bike is screwed up. I need a ride later. And then, you know, Rick, Rick Majerus comes up to me, the coach, and he's like, do you want us to swim for you? We can swim. We can swim. And I'm like, man, it's not a big deal. Like, um, it was an accident and I didn't want any money from the guy. I was just like, just give me a new bike, man. Like, that's all I care about. Just give me a new bike and, and I'll get on my get on my way. So the dude, the lady's husband ended up buying me a bike, a couple hundred bucks, and that was the end of that. But it was a real close call of I've been in some serious trouble and having a serious injury basically before the season even started. So I kind of stopped riding after that, at least on the road. I'd just stay on the paths, but then it started snowing. So that 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 was a bit of a hazard as far as getting around campus. I come off the bike a few times on ice, and I'd, I'd come off my feet a few times on ice. I never, never dealt with snow before, so didn't realize there's there's times where you you're just walking and you hit some some black ice that you can't really see, and you just fall over, and everyone's laughing at you, and that's just <laughs> how you figure out quickly that you need number one some good shoes, some grip, and number two you got to be vigilant where the hell you're walking when it's snowing. So. That all ended up um, going that way. My second semester, I ended up buying a car off a teammate. I had received some money from my grandmother who had received a settlement from Croatia from, if you listen to episode one, you'd know my family tree and my, my grandfather that had divorced my grandma and moved back to Croatia. They had some land over there. Finally sold it 10 years on and, and got a settlement and my grandmother had basically given it to my you know, my mom, of course, my auntie, my so the, her daughter, and then the grandkids, which was myself and my sister. I ended up getting, I think, roughly four, five, six grand. I think it was about six grand Aussie. Now, back then, the exchange rate was terrible. So, someone sends a hundred Australian, it was it was fifty cents to the dollar. So, you get fifty dollars for that in the states. So, the Aussie dollar didn't go far. So, even when my parents tried to help and send send some money, it, it really didn't go too far. So, the, the money from my grandma helped. I now had enough to buy a car. So, I bought a. A Pontiac Grand Am, purple, deep purple color. I still remember it to this day. I love that car. It was a 1994, 95 model. A teammate of mine, Nick Jacobson, gave it to me, sold it to me because he had another car. And, and that was that was kind of my, my get around. It was, I think it cost me 2,500 bucks, but I didn't then realize I had to get insurance, had to get this registration. So by the time he did all that, all my grandma's money and son was gone. So that was kind of how I cruised around campus. I thought thought I was a man in that car. <laughs> it was a piece of shit, but when I had it, I thought it was, I thought it was the best thing ever. I ended up putting the following year, I bought some wheels for it and got the windows tinted. And yeah, I thought I was, I thought I was gangster in that. But um, it made me learn how to drive because a front wheel, 
drive car in the, in the snow. You know, it wasn't all wheel drive. That that was that was alarm bells. The first time I drove in snow. Never driven in snow before, but I had to learn. The funny story about the car was once I once I received the car, I didn't have a license. I had no US license. Matter of fact, I didn't have an Australian license. I had a learner permit still. So I buy the car. Like all things in life that I've done, I, I kind of get the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken, however you want to word it. But I go to my coaches, I'm like, I don't have my license. So one of the assistant coaches, Kerry Rupp, he was a high school coach in Utah before he came to the University of Utah as an assistant coach. So he's like, look, I've got a, I'm good friends with the driving instructor there. We'll get you a, a driving test. Can you drive? I'm like, yeah, man, I'm fine. I can drive. Like never driven in America before, <laughs> like at all. Never driven a car, other side of the road, different laws. So I get the, get the little book. Literally spend 20 minutes reading it before I go for my, my driving test, actual physical driving test. So I'm like, I go for the driving test, pass, no issue. The only thing that kind of gets me and, and still does to this day in, in America is if four, if four people show up to a, an intersection with stop signs at the same time, I still, I still have no idea who goes first. So I'd either go aggressively or I'd wave someone else through, but that's kind of something I still have a problem with to this day. So I passed the, 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 that test. I then I do the written test. I just pass it. I get I think it, you have to get eighty percent, and I was like eighty one percent or whatever it was. Get on my paperwork, and they're like, "Oh, you need someone now to drive you down to the DMV or the licensing and registration office. Drive you down there. They do all your documentation. They tick you off, take the photo, and then you can drive after that, and you'll get your license in the mail." So I'm like, "Okay." So I leave there. I'm like. Well, I have no one to take me down there. So I'm like, okay, cool. Got a car. So I drive myself down to get my license without a license, come down there, do all my paperwork. And they're like, okay, you got your license. Just get someone, get someone to pick you up from the licensing division and, and you're good to go home. I'm like, yeah, no worries. Just walk out the door, jump in my car and drive back. And it was something stupid that I did at the time. Probably shouldn't have done it, but um, that was just kind of fit in with my life and the shit that I used to do it wasn't a big deal to me and I just made sure I was cautious when I was driving had no insurance at that time and I think it still had registration from my teammate thankfully so got away with that and and then had had a car to get around had a license and and thought I was a man so one other thing I, I didn't really party too much my freshman year you, you hear all these college stories I went to a few parties here and there but it wasn't a weekly occurrence I uh, went to a few frat parties which were, were were like the movies um got in a fight with a frat house one time which was interesting had to almost James Bond ourselves out of their house don't um a word of advice would be don't start a fight with a frat bro inside a frat bro's house because uh it's pretty tricky getting out but we ended up getting out of there unscathed and then um had a had a whole house chasing us down the street <laughs> so that, that was funny i had a girlfriend at the time in canberra funnily enough when i when i came from my freshman year like and tried to do the long distance thing shocker it didn't work but it was more from her end um funnily enough i was i kept low key i didn't really go out too much especially when i when i had, had the girlfriend but it was um it was hard to maintain a relationship long distance back then today's much easier with facetime and all that back then even a phone call would cost me four or five dollars a minute the only time i could really catch her would be on msn messenger the time difference was killer because she worked during the day so that um obviously didn't last i'd try to sneak into the coaches offices sometimes and they um when they weren't looking and and call overseas and just have a quick chat to her on a mobile and that cost them probably 50 bucks for the five minutes I spent on it. But uh, that was interesting. It ended up getting cut short by her. I guess she had a few girlfriends in her ear at the time saying, what do you think he's doing over there? This, that, this, that. So that ended. So moving on, you would have noticed that I haven't touched on much basketball stuff and that was uh, strategically done just to get the off-court stuff out of the way for the most part. We'll touch on a little bit more of it down the track. But now we get to the fun stuff, the basketball. and. The really fun stuff and where shit gets real, Coach Rick Majerus. So I had signed with the University of Utah 
not to go to the University of Utah. I signed with the University of Utah to be coached by Rick Majera. So that's the first thing that's very important. So we'll rewind it back a little bit just to set the scene of when I was recruited by the University of Utah. Coach Rick Majeris had flown out to Australia, finally had not not really met him, not really spoke to him on the phone. Everything was kind of delegated to the assistant coaches. He flies out to watch a game out in Bendigo, playing in, which is in rural Victoria, for those that don't know Victoria or Australia too well. It's about a two, two and a half hour drive from from the city of Melbourne and about three hours from where I lived, where I grew up. So he, he comes out to see that game. First off, he almost gets arrested by Border Patrol coming into the country. He has eight, nine, ten cans of peanuts in his briefcase, getting off the plane, doesn't declare it. You know, he's he lives by his own rule, and we'll get to that a little bit later as to why, but he comes with the assistant coach, Kerry Rupp, who was one of the main guys that recruited me, and um, I guess Kerry Rupp tells a story that he basically had to calm Coach Majerus down for, from going at, at the security officials, the Custom Border Patrol, and kind of talk them out, out of out of getting a fine or further sanctions. So he understood he made a mistake. I think he got he got a warning, a written warning, and that was his start to come into Australia. So then we're playing in Bendigo. He drives drives out there, and you weren't allowed to watch. This is the NCAA rules for you. It was a dead period for watching games for some reason. You could talk to recruits that had signed. You could not recruit someone that hadn't signed at that period of the year. And you couldn't watch games, even if they were involved, because you could potentially be recruiting other players. So I remember he came out to that game. I played horribly. He was watching the game through a little crack through a window upstairs somewhere at Bendigo Stadium or wherever it was. Like he wasn't exposed to everyone watching the game, just sneakily was watching it. And I played played pretty bad. It was an important name, Ricky Daniels there. I believe has a son who's who's very, very good coming through the the NBA Australia program. But he kicked my ass. He was an American import and just knew how to play, physical guy, you know, strong, and just was one of my best games in, in, the, a- in the ABA there in Siebel. So we then have a game. I think we played on a Friday night in Bendigo. We have a game on Sunday down near Melbourne in Frankston, I believe it was, somewhere down there. So the whole team was, was going back Saturday morning, I believe it was, on a bus. So I end up going back Friday night. I go back with Coach Kerry Rupp's driving. I believe I was uh, sitting in the back with Brian Gorgian and Rick Majerus was in the front. So he's into me as soon as I get in the car. You need to work on your body. You're too skinny. You need to do this. You need to do that. I saw a bit of the game. You're doing this. You're too soft here. Straight away, first time I've met him, right? That was the intro to him. So he's just, this is a two, three hour drive. Just just he's into me from day one, uh, from minute one, sorry. And um what was interesting about it was he would fall asleep mid-speech. So he'd be like, you know, Bogut, you need to you need to do this when you're coming down. And out, out cold, starts start sleeping. So I'm sitting in the car. I look at Brian Gorgian. I'm like, man, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, and he's just looking at me like, I don't know. Kerry Rupp's just kind of laughing it off, not saying much. He's driving the car and I'm like, sweet. I'm, I'm kind of free. You can just kind of driving down the highway, you know, it's dark and kind of just tune out and relax after the game a little bit. And then 15, 20 minutes later, he wakes up. And can just continues on with that conversation. So, you know, you just got to keep doing, keep working hard and get get low and do this. And I'm just like, man, what the hell? How do you remember what he was talking about? <laughs> so, he, he was going in and out like that the whole trip. So, I was always like, well, there's a few red flags coming up here. This guy's gone, might not be all there, right? You know? So, anyhow, Saturday, uh, my family, my mum and dad, they put on a dinner that night for Coach Rick Majerus, Coach Kerry Rupp, myself, my mum, my dad, and we invited Marco, my childhood friend that I trained with. You can learn more about him in episode two. 
and his parents, his mum and dad. And we thought, you know, maybe maybe the University of Utah will recruit him once he's out of high school. He was a year, a year younger than me and maybe he'll come over to the Utah. Maybe he won't. Maybe he'll go to a smaller school. Just good to network, right? So did all that and Majerus was – Rogeris at the dinner table, you know, he was blunt, honest, dropping F-bombs, cunt bombs, um, you name it, he said it, farted a few times at the table, <laughs> um, and I guess my old man tells me later on I had I had serious concerns about letting you go play for this guy. I didn't, I didn't want to ruin anything and didn't say anything at the time, but I had I had some serious concerns that this, if this is what the guy's doing in my home at the dinner table, and my dad's a fiery guy, as you'd know by, by episode one. You know, he just thought, look, it's better just keep my mouth shut. And but I, I definitely had some serious concerns. So there were a bit of alarm bells, right? Anyway, we get to, I get to Utah, and boy, was I right. Those red flags were bright red flags. Alarm bells ringing. He did a little bit of those individuals I spoke to, I spoke about. You know, those two hours a week we could do. He'd show up every now and then for those sessions. I remember, which we'll touch on later. I have, a, I have a guest on who can give a bit more color and context around these stories, but. He'd move us around at different kind of facilities around campus. Keep in mind, we have the Huntsman Center, which is our own court. We have a practice facility connected to that. He didn't like practicing there because in case he goes over, which not in case, when he goes over the allotted amount of time for that session, if he's in a private gym where no one else is, he can kind of get around those rules by the NCAA. So we would train in Jewish community centers. We would train in a lot of Mormon churches had basketball courts in them. It was kind of weird at the time. Like, why don't we just train in our own? You know, we didn't really realize that we're just stupid young kids. And it was, I guess it was a way to circumnavigate those rules in case someone's there with a, you know, camera phones were brand new, but someone records a session, someone sees it and says, oh, they were here for three hours, whatever it was. So that was his, that was his kind of way. But I had a small introduction to him in those sessions of, of how crazy he was and but it was it was somewhat tapered and it wasn't they weren't long sessions. So it wasn't a team session where it's two hours a day every day. So it was two hours a week. If he came to two out of three sessions of those 40-minute sessions, it's an hour, hour and 20 minutes of your time, and then you forget about it, you're doing other stuff. So it didn't really sit on your mind too much. And you, you're like, the dude's crazy, but it, it kind of it was what it was. You could just go go home. But man, once the once the first team session started, it was it was on like Donkey Kong. It was it was the guy was certifiable at times. One thing I want to preface that I should have said earlier. He has passed away. May he rest in peace. I don't like speaking ill of the dead. I don't think this is speaking ill. I think it's it's very factual. I have a lot of respect for, for the way he coached, and I want to separate his basketball coaching talent was second to none. He's one of the best coaches I've ever had, one of the best basketball IQ guys, time and score guys, breaking down other teams' plays. He was he's top of the list. Some of the off-court stuff was very, very questionable, and, and that's just it is what it is, and the point of this podcast is to be bluntly honest, and, and this isn't a conversation that I, I would run away from if he was sitting right in front of me, so I just want to preface that, and obviously, may, may, may he rest in peace, but um, I get to that first team session, and I had the I had the blonde tips and the, the rat's tail, and I had a haircut of a dickhead, really, but he, he basically goes to me that first session halfway through, a quarter through, hey, Bogut. You don't have a haircut by tomorrow, you're running the whole session. <laughs> so I'm like, oh shit, here we go. So I ended up going to get my my haircut at the university barbershop, which was, I guess, people studying to be hairdressers. You know, I grew up being a wog, right? So hair was pretty important. You know, we'd gel our hair and style our hair and put blonde dye in it, you know, you know, just like hair was a big part of who I was, right? So I'd go to this hairdresser and Looking at it, I'm like, man, something's not right here. They, they look nervous, and you know. So anyway, they put they put me in the chair, and um, 
the kicker was they turn you away from the mirror so you're facing the other way, right? So that's kind of weird. Like, why is he turning me away from the mirror? So by the time he turned me back around, my hair was butchered. Like, it was if you go back into onto the University of Utah website or find a media guide and check my freshman year photo, the mugshot. He basically just gave me a, a square box box head buzz cut, and it, it was awful. But anyway, so I got that done. wasn't too happy about it. couldn't couldn't do anything with it. Looked terrible, my big ass ears and nose sticking out, but it was what it was, right? So I got that done, and I mean, <clears throat> getting to those sessions, it was it was in your face from day one. There was no honeymoon period. There was no, you know, well, he's he's player X into this and player Y into this, and he was he was crazy. He, he would drop every swear word under the sun. He would cuss out your parents, your grandparents, your auntie, your uncle, your your dog, your cat, whatever you had. You pissed him off. He would he would say he would say something that would try to hurt you, and that's just you know a lot of a lot of cunt, a lot of you know just derogatory stuff at times. And that was just the way he was. It was understood that this is this is how he is. This is how he toughens up his players. Um, I mean, could he coach in today's era? I don't think so. It would be one one short video that someone records of a session, and he'd be done for for, for life almost. Um, which is a shame to an extent because I think deep down. He had a good heart in there somewhere at times, but um, I think he hurt just as much people as he helped. He developed a lot of players, but I think he hurt a lot as well. And that's that's kind of the side you don't see and the stories you don't hear about generally, which we'll get to a little bit later. But every name under the sun, man. Who was your high school coach, Bogut? He was an idiot. They're morons. They should never coach again. They haven't taught you shit. In America, we do things like this. This is in Australia. If you want to do that, go back to Australia. Turn the ball over. You know, like, what are you doing? We're not playing with kangaroos anymore. Just every day, nonstop. And some of it was funny. Like, I'm not going to lie. Some of the shit, you'd, you'd actually laugh. But a lot of times, your teammates would be laughing at you and just be happy that he was on someone else but them. And it would be almost cyclical where he'd He'd have a different player he'd, he'd be going at. And he, once it was your turn, you might get it for two weeks straight. Um, and then he might come back to you. He might not. But there were there were two particular players that um, that I remember really were really affected by him. And, and both were – so Ryan Wirch from Wisconsin, I think he was a finalist in Mr. Basketball, meaning the best basketball in your state at that time. And the other one was Steven Zimmerman. He was um, Mr. Basketball in Utah, big guy. He was – Real talented, good footwork, but his body was a, a little little pudgy. Like he wasn't over like overweight. He wasn't fat. He just didn't have no tone in his body. So you know, kind of doughboyish. I don't think he did any put a lot of work into his weights in high school, and probably wasn't in a system that emphasized that. So Majerus hated him from day one. He, he basically said he had cheerleader tits and. You know, his girlfriend's in better shape and all that kind of stuff. And the other kid, Ryan Wirch, was, was, was a really good player, knew how to play and, and just, I, I guess, was just crushed confidence-wise, was just scared, to, so scared to make a mistake. And that, that was a problem with Rick Majerus at times. He'd, he'd have you playing scared to make a mistake because he was big on turnovers where you wouldn't want to um, make a mistake. So then you're not attacking as much as you can. You become very robotic. It's a hard way to play. So you have to kind of adapt to that on the fly. And I'd still... It would hurt me a lot because I played very freely and I'd, I'd read and react based on what my defender was doing. So, you know, if a defender overplays on a certain play and I get by him and that wasn't the play, I'm, I'm going. Like, that's I'm playing basketball. And he even got on me, you know, for, for that for that kind of stuff. And I kind of – it would it would put me in my back foot a little bit, but I'd still have another crack. And if I made a mistake, I made a mistake. But the, the problem was if you did something good out of it, he'd never say, hey, that was good, you know. So that was just kind of the mentality that he had. So those two kids really struggled. One of them, you know, Stefan Zimmerman, would basically just—it was—it was sad, man. When you look back at it, he as soon as he made the first mis- his first mistake at practice, whether it was in the first minute or whatever, Rick Majerus would look at him and he, he'd correlate that to him not being in shape. He's not mentally sharp because he's sucking sucking wind and he can't 
you know, he's not fit. Um, so he'd be like, Stefan, up and back 20 times. And be like, what do you mean 20 times? And that would be when we trained in our arena. 20 times meant you had to go all the way to the top of the arena and touch the the wall and come back down. That was one. So think about this. You got the lower bowl up all those stairs. Then you have to run to the concourse, go up the other stairs to go to the upper bowl, touch the top, come down. That's one. And I remember this poor kid, like you'd, he'd send it, he'd stop, yell at him. Everyone would kind of stop. All right, he's been sent for 20 up and backs and then would be in like the fifth drill 25 minutes later and this kid's still running. He'd <laughs> be like, where's, where's Stefan at? Still running up and down the stairs. So this kid, long story short, once Majerus had resigned later on that year, we had Christmas holidays. The kid didn't come back. Um, he was he was gone. He was he went um, he went rogue, as you'd say. He just disappeared. He um, went up in the hills somewhere. I think his father had a cabin up in the hills in the mountains somewhere. No one saw him. He stopped coming to class. Didn't come to practice. We're trying to find him. What the hell was going on? And he was a scholarship holder. He was a, he was a good. He was a he could have been a professional. He could have played in the NBL in Australia or, or in Europe in some of the lower leagues and, and made a good living out of it, but just burnt this kid out. He was a Mormon kid, had a great personality, but ended up being a, you know, smoking weed every day and grew a beard past his chin, you know, past his past his neck down to his neck, whatever whatever you want to call it. But um, that was one example. And then Ryan Wirch, I think he transferred. I don't know if it was, I think it was at the end of that season and, and went back and played at a small school in Wisconsin, Wisconsin Green Bay, I think. And I think a, a small school out there, I could be wrong on it being Green Bay, but I think it was. But he was a pretty good player. Like when I first saw him, I was like, man, this kid's really good. He can shoot it, can handle it, can do a little bit of everything. And that was two prime examples of kids that just just never really, never really rebounded from from the mind fuck that they got from from Coach Majerus. And but on the flip side he has he has developed some guys as well. And I guess it's arguable whether that's the right way to go about things. Everyone kind of reacts differently with that kind of stuff. And Coach Majerus was a guy that it was one paint stroke for everybody. If you didn't like it, you were leaving kind of attitude. So I remember we'd um we'd have sessions and whenever he'd walk in the building, it was you you could hear a pin drop and the seriousness went up a hundredfold. The intensity went up. If you were going at hundred percent, the intensity went up another hundred percent. He had that kind of aura about him. Like I said, I, I think he's one of the best coaches I've ever had, X's and O's wise, scouting other teams, breaking down sets. He'd know other teams' sets better than their own players knew them. He'd know random outs, uh, baseline out-of-bounds plays and side out-of-bounds plays. And he was just a basketball aficionado and just knew the game back to front and, and knew what it took to win. I think he's one of the winningest coaches still to this day of all time, he, or he's at least up there. I think Utah's home record speaks for itself. It's got to be close to 90% of winning in Utah teams ever really came into that building and beat us. And he was a big part of that. So training sessions, your shirt's tucked in or you run, your shirt comes untucked, you run and a teammate runs for not telling you it's untucked. The mentality was was full bore from the moment he was in there to the moment he walked out. Now the kicker is this, he could abuse you and call you every name under the sun for two straight hours. The moment he stepped off the court, one foot off that line, I still remember it to this day, the first time he did it to me, he put his arm around me he said, no, Bogut, uh, how's everything going? Are you homesick? Do you need anything? You want some food? Uh, what, what can we do for you? And I'm just like, are you serious? This guy's, this guy's nuts. Like he, was just, he was just in me for two hours telling me he regrets recruiting me, go back to Australia, and now, now he's befriending me. And I guess, I guess his mentality was he needs to turn on the off-the-court stuff even more than most coaches would because the the on the court stuff was so harsh at times and I think that's just kind of the, the way he played it in his mind um that he he just tried to I guess befriend you off the court and I, I look at you appreciate it to an extent but then the very next morning you come in and have a session he's he's back in you so and this isn't 
you know, something that you're, you're like, oh, maybe he was just hard. You just need to suck it up. He was, but there was there was a lot of sauce on it and there was some stuff that I've heard everything under the sun. You know, Steve, my trainer, swearing at me in Croatian, swearing at me in English, broken English, I've, you know, all that stuff. I've heard it. I've heard it. But this was a whole other level from from even those guys. And this this wasn't just to what players, you know, it was assistant coaches. It was managers it was anyone helping out everyone was walking around on eggshells around this guy and it was just something you have to tolerate but i'll get to a few examples of of some funny things that he used to do or that we thought was funny and silly and stupid i mean he used to wear these these shorts that were from probably the 90s that were really really small he's a he's a big fella big 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 kind of beer gut thicker guy and and half the time his balls would be hanging out of the shorts he wouldn't wear underwear and he'd be just walking around man like he'd sit down in a chair his balls would hang out and you know the whole team's laughing at him so he, he really gave no fucks about any, about anything he lives in a hotel room on campus which is well known it's it's in newspaper articles whatnot he, he was he, he's been quoted by saying you know something along the lines of no matter how bad a day the maid's having i know i'm always going to get fresh towels and new sheets <laughs> I had a few teammates, people that, that were closer to him that went to, to his room and a lot of times it'd be just shit everywhere and food and pizza boxes and whatnot. And he was a different guy. He didn't didn't have a wife or kids, um, just kind of kind of did his own thing, but lived in basically lived in a in a in a hotel campus Marriott, which wasn't wasn't a five star hotel by any means. It was a three and a half, four star hotel and just was happy living there. But um the balls thing was interesting when you when, when you didn't know about it because a lot of the guys were already kind of new and then there'd be a new recruit like me would come in and be like, hey does anyone notice like his balls are hanging out? <laughs> and everyone would just start laughing. So after I get hit by the car on my bicycle, I need a ride home. So we finished training that night pretty late. I think it was seven, eight o'clock at night and he offers to give me a ride home. So I'm like cool. He gives me a ride home and I jump in the car. He's like, get in the car. First off, he parks heavily illegally on the campus, like where the cars aren't supposed to go. He just parks his car right next to the arena. He had the key to the city in Salt Lake City. Knew all the police, knew the mayor, knew everyone. He was he was the man. Like you're not you're not you're not messing with him in that city. He could kind of do what he wanted, and and, and he acted that way. He knew he could do whatever the hell he wanted, and no one's going to say shit to him. So I get in the I get in the car. He's like, get in the car. I get in, sit in the passenger seat. Doesn't get in the car. I'm like, what the hell is he doing? Kind of lean over and have a look, and he's just half hunched over and um he's pissing on on his own car tire the front the front wheel just pissing having a piss on his own car it wasn't his car it was a he had a, a deal with a car dealership so i couldn't give a shit because it wasn't his pisses on it gets in the car i have to go through that main road to get back to the dorms runs the red light doesn't stop <laughs> gets to the stop signs doesn't stop i'm like man this guy's nuts like he just doesn't care and and i was like you know, basically saying like, you know, that was a red light back. Oh, no, it'll be fine. I know everyone here. I know the police. They won't do anything. I'm just like, oh, my goodness. This is a whole different world from where I've come from. So that was an adjustment. He, um, something we'll touch on later with Cody. I won't spoil it. But when high school coaches, even random coaches come to our practices, he'd somehow end up abusing them, <laughs> getting them involved in the practices. And you'll see why later. So stay tuned. The Stefan Zimmerman cheerleader body. you got cheerleader tits. You know, the girls down on the, on the cheer squad will be jealous of your body. You know, just, just absolutely railing him, which was kind of crazy. When we go on the road, he would, God forbid, anyone came into any of our practices on the road. Say we're playing in, you know, Las Vegas against UNLV and we have a shoot around that morning or practice the night before. He saw anyone walking around in there, he would think straight away they're recording our practices and trying to steal information about how we're going to guard them or whatever. He would just start laying into anyone he saw in the upper bowl. Sometimes it'd be arena workers like sweeping 
hey, who's that motherfucker up there? What are you doing? You know, like, and he'd send one of the assistant coaches and he'd be like, go and get that motherfucker out of here. And you're just like, whoa. And it's like, hey, I'm the janitor. Like, I don't care what you guys are doing. I've been told I need to clean this place up before the game tomorrow or, or whatever it was. And, you know, we got a kick out of that because you just, halfway through training, he just spaz out at someone walking by. And it was, that's just, that's just who he was. He was, he was himself. He was direct. He was blunt. Whether it was a 12-year-old boy or girl or a 40-year-old man, he, he didn't care how he put his point forward and, and that was the craziest thing about him. He was he was himself. So he definitely gives you enough ammunition for stories for the rest of your life and that's something that I touch on with Cody later on in the in the podcast when he comes on is I guess when you've worked for Majerus or played for him, you have that bond with everyone else that has played or worked with him where you can tell these stories and, and it's happened to me numerous times. Kevin Lish former teammate of mine at the Sydney Kings. He played for Rick Majerus at the University of St. Louis. We have very similar stories. Another import, Brian Conklin, who played for the Wongong Hawks a couple of seasons ago, mentioned a few stories, you know, it's, and it's just the same stuff rehashed pretty much. He does the same shit wherever he goes. So anyhow, look, I think, like I said, he, he helped a lot of players, but he also harmed a lot of players. And then that was that was a crazy thing. The, the thing with with Rick Majerus that I found very interesting. I had a lot of people I respected that were very fond of Rick Majerus and he had a lot of people that protected him. So a lot of the things that he did were definitely not not right as far as things he said and did on a basketball court to, to, to student athletes. And But there were people that would, would, would heavily protect him. Um, I'm not sure if they saw a different side of him. I know he does. he's done stuff, which we'll get to later on in, in my journey once I'm in the NBA for what he, what he did with me. But he's donated to a lot of charities. He's he's done all that kind of stuff. So he has a good kind of social presence about him. But then, like a lot of people that that do that stuff, I think for the wrong reasons, they're trying to hide what what they're really like on the court. And there was a Sports Illustrated article. I'm not sure how long ago now. It might have been seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. I don't know if I was in I was in Milwaukee still, or if I just got to Golden State. But there was a journalist that basically had dug into into Coach Majerus and all the all the wrongdoings of his past. And some of the stuff was pretty scathing. And I guess they knew my relationship wasn't great with him when he departed the school. And I got calls from a couple of coaches that I respected very much and still respect to this day that begged me not to comment on that article when the journalist contacts me because they, they knew he'd eventually get in touch with me. And out of respect to those people, I didn't because I really there was one guy in particular that I really respected and, and he'd been involved in my career, you know, different, different portions of it. But it just amazed me how he had some people that were protecting him at all costs, and that was that it was what it was, right? So I guess the final kind of straw with me and him <laughs> that really, really got me mad was we play at um, I don't know where we were playing at that year that that week, but I'm, I'm basically going for a, a rebound. The guy I'm guarding is in the weak side corner, so I'm on the weak side. I help defense, whatever, I'm on the weak side block. Someone shoots it from the opposite wing. Now, we have a rule with Rick Majerus that his big thing was defense and rebounding. If you get those two things right, you got a, you got a really good chance to win every game, right? So with rebounding, it was you always head check. If your man's on the perimeter, you head check. You turn around, you physically look, is he coming? If he's crashing to the, to the rebound, then I, I take a step towards him, hit him, and then box him out. Now, if you head check and your opponent says at the three-point line, he doesn't come, you then turn around and try to get the rebound. That was a basic rule, right? So it was pretty pretty common sense. So I turn, I head check as, as someone shoots his shot from the opposite wing. And a teammate was a kid from Denmark, Jonas Longvard, and, and um, he doesn't crash the rebound. He stays in the corner. So I turn and get the rebound. Of course, this ball goes right over my head into the corner. 
Rick Majerus is sitting on a on a basket stanchion, so the bottom part of the basket, kind of the the back part, the backing. He's sitting on that. It's probably only about you know a foot high. So he's sitting down. He's a big fella. He starts hollering at me straight away, Bogan, you pussy box out. What the fuck are you doing? This that this that. So I just said like, hey. I head checked. He didn't come. Like, what the fuck do you want me to do? I can't. I can't jump twenty five feet in the air on a bad bounce and get the rebound. Like, unless you want me to run to the perimeter to box a guy out, then I'm taking myself out of rebounding position, right? So he doesn't want to hear it. He starts to waddle his way to his feet, trying to stand up from that low position as a big guy is hard. Took him twenty or thirty seconds. It felt like an eternity. He stands up and he just ha- he has a water bottle in his hand, a small water bottle. And he starts walking towards me and he's like, fuck you, and just throws this bottle, pivots it at me. I'm like, here we go. So this ball's, this bottle's coming straight towards me. Thankfully, it drops about a foot or two, a meter right before me and then slides and smacks me in the, in the, in the foot. So I'm like, okay, here we go. I've got an excuse now. So I just start V-lining towards him. Like, I don't think I would have punched him, but I would have definitely got in his face and, and had a crack and, and yelled back and whatever. And I get, I get basically grabbed by the assistant coaches and some players. They take me to the, the tunnel, the locker room. We're going backwards and forwards. I'm like, at that point, I said, you know, fuck you. I'm going to Europe, man. I don't need this. I want to get out of here. So then I go back to, to the locker room. I shower up. I don't say shit to anyone. I walk back to the dorm rooms. And from what I understand, he shit himself because he thought I was done. He sent an assistant coach to, to make sure, you know, I, um, I'm all good and get me back, get, get me back square that it can calm me down. And the funny thing was, we had, it was during Christmas holidays. So at universities, when everyone goes home for Christmas, they usually go to their home cities where they're from. The kids that stay on campus all have to move out of their dorm room into one building. So they want all the students remaining on campus to move to one building for obvious reasons. If there's a fire, they know where all the students are. They don't want kids stealing shit. If there's only three kids left in one apartment block, you know, bad shit can happen. So. The assistant coaches didn't know my new dorm room, so I, I turned my phones off. I didn't answer them. I, I made them made them panic and stress. Like, like this kid's this kid's gone. Like he might have gone on a plane, and gone home, and we don't know where he's at. We can't find him. And then eventually, by like midnight that night, this was an afternoon training session. I finally answered the door to my coach, assistant coach, and and they talked me off the ledge. And I came to the practice the next day, and Coach Juris didn't mention it, didn't say a word to me. I joined the drills and. I thought he was going to light into me again, didn't say anything, just totally ignored it, left me alone for maybe three or four or five days, and then that following week was on me again like normal. So that was, um, yeah, it was just interesting. It was just an interesting time. He was a coach that would get the best. I think he got the best out of players, to be honest with you, that weren't overly talented. If you were a low to middle tier player with an unbelievable work ethic that could take a lot of shit. He would turn you into a, some sort of professional. I'm not saying NBA player, but he would turn you into somewhat of a professional. The uber talented guys that came in, I saw more often than not just wouldn't work out. He'd take confidence away from you. Guys would shut down. And it was just interesting watch, looking at it as a maybe a psych study or something like that. I'd write a thesis on it that I think he really did well with with guys that were just that would overwork knowing they weren't talented and just um yeah, if you, you know, it was just hard. It kind of felt like at times with me, I was pretty talented at that time and, and he took some of my confidence away at times where I'd, I wouldn't be as aggressive because like I said, I'd, I'd be scared to make a mistake and that was no way to play basketball and that, 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 that's just no way to do anything in life. If you're scared to make a mistake, you're almost playing to lose. He was a coach that I guess made you question how much you love basketball on a daily basis. Do you love it enough to deal with this shit every day? Do you love basketball enough to come in here and, and be motherfucked and be told you're the one of the worst recruits he's ever seen and, and your parents failed and you, you are you are you are you in love with the game that much? Thankfully my answer was yes. 
But there were days I questioned it. I'm not going to lie to you. There were days I'd, I'd wake up and be like, man, I don't know if I can take this shit anymore. <laughs> you know, you go have, go have a meal, have a nap, and then you'd, you'd be refreshed. And then you go through that two, three hours. And then um, at the end of the session, you'd, you'd almost want to quit. And then the next day you'd refresh and you just kept grinding that. And you ride on that horse every day and just grinded it out. And, and eventually you, you get there. But it was hard. It was probably one of the hardest parts of my of my journey and i knew it was that it was that last step to get to the next level that i had to get through but it's easier said than done so he has a few blow-ups with me a few times we play at colorado they're a very good team they had a big fellow named um, i think his name was david harrison very big kind of baby shack like at that point in his career for college he ended up getting drafted to play for the indiana pacers i believe he was in that in that big brawl i think indiana versus detroit where it spilled into the crowd. I believe he was on that team as a rookie or second-year player, but we beat them in Colorado. I remember I missed a box out right before halftime. Someone's shooting a free throw, and we're the defensive team. I box out, and the ball just goes right over my head, and the guy behind me grabs it. They don't score out of it, but as we're walking to the tunnel, he's he's in me already before we even get to the locker room, starts cussing me out, laying into me. So I'm trying to like walk faster <laughs> just to get away from this dude, and he's like waddling after me. I can just hear him behind me like, cussing me out so then he comes straight into the locker room lays into me and then he almost collapses he almost passes out so coaches have to grab him we're like what's going on is he have have a heart attack and then i'm copping shit from my teammates you kill coach man you kill coach like half half jokingly once we knew it wasn't that serious he coached the rest of the game and then we had another run in at, at air force where I was getting my ass kicked and just not playing well and had another run in at halftime there so he was he was on me on me on me on me and then we get to a week before our f- first game against BYU, which is a huge rivalry. BYU is about an hour bus trip, hour and a half bus trip from Salt Lake City in Provo, Utah. Utah versus BYU is one of the big rivalry games in all of, of uh, not only college basketball, college football, but, but college sports, big rivalry, right? So I think Duke, North Carolina, th- those equivalents on, on, on that side of the country. So it's Monday morning. Our game's on a Saturday. We're preparing for that. I think we just... I don't know who we just played, but we're preparing for that game. I think we just lost, and we all get pulled out of class one by one. So my class was at 8.50 a.m. I get pulled out of class. What's going on? What did I do? Am I in trouble? And we meet at the Huntsman Center offices. whole team's there in the boardroom, and we're all waiting. What's going on? What's going on? I can't remember who came and told us. It might have been one of our assistant coaches, but basically says, you know, Coach Majerus has had a heart attack. He's... um. You know, he's not going to coach this week. We don't know when he'll be back, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, there was, there was some tear, tears in, in that room. The interesting thing was one of the teammates asked, well, can we go visit him in hospital? Well, you can't go visit him. He's, he's, he got on a, on a flight and flew out to, to, to California. Hang on a second. Did he have a heart attack? Or how did he get on, how did he get on a plane? A few of the guys were already like, what the, what the hell is going on? Something doesn't add up. But we didn't know. We thought legit he, was, he had a heart attack. So we've got tears, this, that. We, we don't hear from this guy again tool right before the conference tournament which was months down the track hear nothing not a good day hello not a phone call nothing and um the only reason that got done was our basketball ops guy thought it'd be a good idea much to the detriment of our of our then coach who took over who was an assistant Kerry Rupp he he didn't even know about it but our basketball ops guy thought it'd motivate us going to the conference tournament and um he had a conference call with us and basically just said good luck guys i'm with you this that this that and that was it never had any interaction with him after that i didn't personally neither did the team which was disappointing because a lot of guys signed to go to that school predominantly because of, of coach majerus and and he basically just taken off on us and we, we 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 at the time thought it was because of a heart issue now 
I did a bit of digging and had come to find out there was a kid named Lance Allred. He's got a fantastic story on himself, and I urge you to, to, to Google his name, Lance Allred. He played at the University of Utah for a couple of years and then transferred to Weber State, which was a, another school in Utah. I believe Damien Lillard went there and a few other big-time players have come to a smaller school, but um, a really, really good school when it comes to punching above their weight. So he transfers there anyway. Lance Allred is, I believe, the, the only, only deaf player to ever play in the NBA. Unbelievable story. He played in the G League for a number of years and I think he played a little bit overseas, but he would wear hearing devices and, and whatnot. And, and from my understanding, when he was at the University of Utah, Rick Majerus said some really, really bad, bad things to him on, on, on the basketball court at times about, about his disability, about his hearing. And I guess the kid transferred back in the early 2000s, transferred to Weber State. Apparently, an investigation was done. Lance went to the University officials and was like, This is why I'm transferring, you know, this guy's blah, 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 blah. They deem the investigation doesn't go anywhere. They don't find any conclusive evidence, even though there, there were there were a few witnesses that corroborated the story, whatever. That all goes, gets swept under the rug. So you fast forward to, to the year I'm there. We play Weber State about a month before that BYU game. And I guess I didn't. we didn't read the media much then. The internet wasn't what, what it was. I'm not buying the local paper. The Salt Lake Tribune had a, a full-page spread about Lance Allred because the University of Utah is playing Weber State. So it's a, almost a welcome back for Lance, his story. The story is basically he's airing everything about Rick Majerus in that story. And it's it's pretty in your face. It's pretty – you read it and, and you, you don't come out with a – a good taste in your mouth about what transpired, even if 10% of it was true, put it that way, right? So my understanding is that that, that, that article came out early in the year, January. Everyone's kind of on holidays coming back, so school's starting to ramp up, and then I believe the NCAA somehow gets involved, school gets involved, and we're going we're gonna to have to investigate this again. I guess there was some back and forth. Um, Rick basically said, from what I understand, was if you investigate me, I'm gone the next day. I'm out. See you later. Find a new coach to which you got to do. So the school kind of sat on it for a bit, and I guess towards the end of that month, the end of January, had finally officially let Rick Majerus know that, um, look, we're, we're going to reopen the case, and you know, the article was pretty scathing, and we're getting pressure, blah, 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 blah. He said, all right, see you guys later. See you tomorrow. He was gone. And, um, yeah, it was – that's the story that I believe – Sounds a little bit better than, than the heart attack and getting on a plane. It makes sense now why he got on a plane, but he was gone. Didn't see him again after that and um, he ended up getting a few jobs down the line after that and, and I actually have some pretty crazy stories that followed myself and Rick uh, Majerus, you know, a year or two after after he had left. So we'll get to those later on, probably episode five or six around about the draft time. People that have followed me will know exactly what I'm talking about. But So Kerry Rupp takes over anyway. He takes over as a head coach. It kind of felt like some freedom. Some, some. He gave us confidence to to play within the Majera structure of everything that we've learned, but have a bit more freedom. Don't be fearful of mistakes. And and we end up making a run. We end up going to. I played my best basketball that year under Coach Kerry Rupp. We ended up going to the Mountain West Conference tournament and winning that on the buzzer in the final against UNLV. I believe we go get an automatic bid to the tournament and we we go to the NCAA tournament. We play Boston College, who I believe had Craig Smith, Jared Dudley, a few other players. And they were pretty good, and they they beat us um, just. I think it was a five or six point game at the end. But we were in the, we were in the game the whole time. Funnily enough, that game was in the Bradley Center, which would then become my home. Once I got drafted in the NBA, that's where the Milwaukee Bucks played. So didn't realize it at the time. I mean, that's basically where all that where all that sits. Um, so right now, we will 
get a bit more color around all these stories and and welcome a good friend of mine to this day, Cody Figure. So here's that interview. So I'd like to welcome a special guest, Cody Figa Figs, a good friend of mine to this day. He was I got first got introduced to Cody at the University of Utah. He was basically the the team manager, video coordinator, student assistant, however you want to word it, but basically was took care of a lot of our gear, made sure everything was organized and predominantly was Rick Majerus' personal assistant for the most part. Um, so he was a very, very busy man doing a lot of different things. I'll run through his history. So from 2002 to 2007, he was the Utah video coordinator and student assistant, then went on to Louisiana Tech as the director of basketball ops, 2007 to 2011. Then off to UC Riverside, he was director of basketball ops there for a year, 2011-2012. Then off to Utah State as a director of basketball ops, 2012-2013. Down at BYU, a, a big rival of the University of Utah, I gave him a lot of shit for that. Um, the director of basketball ops there from 2013 to 2015. Then to Utah Valley as an assistant coach, so out of the kind of ops role, um, which is something you always wanted to do. And get on the court and be actively coaching from 2015 to 2019 and presently back with the BYU Cougars, a big, big rival rival team of, of the University of Utah. So welcome to the show, Cody. Hey Bogues, thanks for having me on, man. No worries. Um yeah, look, we were we were part of some ups and downs at the University of Utah, so it made sense to get you get you on. I mean, we're friends still to this day. It was a small world because when I was drafted to to the Milwaukee Bucks, you're originally from Milwaukee, so you were pumped about that. You actually your family still live there. I spent I spent some Christmas dinners with your your mum and dad and yourself at times and had the family over. So, it's a small world, but um how do you how do you remember all that? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the day that you know the Bucks had the number one pick and they drafted you, and uh, I mean that was that was an incredible time for me. I'm a 22 year old guy and one of my best friends to be drafted by by my hometown uh, NBA team. That was an incredible experience, and my my parents still you know talk about that stuff to this day, and you know my uncle and brother and, and and his family and all that stuff. So it was a pretty cool experience coming straight out of college. Yeah, no doubt. And we, we got to kind of network and try to help each other out along the years, many, many different facets and got you to some NBA training sessions and we um, try to help each other as much as we can. But um, I guess my freshman year to start out, when was the first time you heard about me? Because obviously back then technology <laughs> wasn't what it is today where you could get film easily or video easily. It was still VHS kind of starting to turn into DVD. But kind of what was, what was the first thing you heard or knew about me? Yeah, so it was, I remember it was my first year at University of Utah, and you were supposed to come in at the winter semester. Do you remember that? But there was something about your After grade. Christmas. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. grades. It wasn't grades. It was, I was short of credit, which the, That's N- what it was. the NCAA wouldn't let me speak about it at length on, on the pod. But yeah, they wouldn't let me over because I, I was short one credit, which was either a physical or a social science. So it's pretty funny you mentioned the grades because Rick Majerus, the head coach and, and the assistants all thought I was an absolute dumbass when I got there because <laughs> I didn't make it in time. Um, but yeah, go on. Yeah. So yeah, no, I, I remember that, but I just remember he, like Coach Majerus would be talking in practice to, you know, Tim Frost and Britton Johnson, you know, before you were coming over, be like, get ready for this Andrew Bogut because he's going to come here and he's going to kick all your guys' butts and he won't be playing basically. That, that's what he was telling all those guys. And then, um, you know, when you, when you finally did, did come over, it was, you know, during the summer and I remember we picked you up from the airport. <laughs> 
And what did, what did I say about you? <laughs> oh, it, was about, it was about a week in. So it was about, a, no, maybe maybe about a month actually. And you looked at me one day, you're, we're in the car together. You, you were basically my chauffeur for the first month or so, making sure I got to everywhere in your, in your Toyota Camry. I still remember it. And um, you turned to me one day and you said, man, you speak really good English. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking dumbass. What, what language do you think we speak in Australia? And you're like, Australian? I'm like, oh man, Wisconsin boy. <laughs> From the Midwest, not too educated about the rest of the world back then was old Cody, but it was hilarious. And I, I've given you shit about that for, for the last 20 years. Yeah, yeah. You got you to gotta understand, I'm from Wisconsin. Like I was on two planes total growing up when I was younger, and that was to like Florida Dis- Disney Disney World and never never did any traveling. Didn't Surprisingly, I didn't care much about Australia, what was going on at that time over there. But I just, yeah, I just kept on hearing about how good of a player you were and how are you going to make an immediate impact on uh, the University of Utah basketball team, which was a powerhouse at that time? Yeah, we won a, won a lot of games, which we'll touch on later. Um, but so then, then I guess this is the flip side. I, I remember landing it at the airport and not knowing who I'm meeting. Coming from Australia, flew by myself. Didn't know if it was a coach or a manager or whoever. And I think it was Scott Garson was there. And I don't know if you were there. Were you at the airport? I think I was, I was at Scott the airport, Garson. but it was quick. I, th- I think I was at the airport, but it was quick. You know, I was just there for just to help out with whatever was needed or carry a bag or who knows what. But yeah, you and I spent a ton of time together right away. Yeah, taking you around for wherever you needed to go at that time. <laughs> oh, just doing paperwork and signing to the university, doing the dorm paperwork and showing me where dining hall was and driving me around. All your international stuff, uh, all those papers and then- and then driving you to get your first haircut in Utah too, I think. Yeah, I mentioned that. Uh, that was interesting. So I got obviously got off the plane. I had the blonde tips, long fringe, the undercut with a rat tail. And <laughs> I, I speak about that at length that um, once we had formal practice start, Rick Majerus basically said, if you don't have that shit cut off by tomorrow, you're running all sessions. So that was enough for me. I went straight to the, the campus barbershop school, funnily enough, and they're absolutely butchered my hair but it was it was really cheap and i had no money so i kind of had no choice so that was definitely um interesting what, what were kind of your first impressions i guess once once i was on the court i mean we only only could really do the two hour sessions or two hours total a week because of the ncaa rules are they still the same by the way now during fall um and spring you know outside of the 20 hours a week that we're usually allowed now we're now it's four hours a week on the court, so on court, so they've they've added those up a little bit, and you can so. split that however you want, or yeah, we can spend that however however we want on the court, and then we get you know we get eight hours total. We can use four hours in the court and four hours in the weight room for a week during those times. Yeah, that's interesting because yeah, when it was when we I was there, it was two hours individuals, which we broke up to three forty minute sessions, and then scrimmaged and did weights, which was quote unquote voluntary. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the yeah. way to get around it. I remember, I don't know if you remember your first individual workout, but it was in the Huntsman Center and Coach from Jarris had, you know, was talking about you setting a ball screen and rolling to the, um, basically the short corner for a shot, you know. And I don't know if you, you remember this, but, you know, he's like, oh, Bogut, you know, I love it. You know, you set a big wide screen and then I want you rolling right here to this, you know, short corner. So, you set a great screen, you rolled and then he's like, now I want to you to get your butt down and be ready to shoot. And then I, if you remember, Coach Reader is like, oh, Christ, Bogut, you don't need to get that low. It's not like you're going to have pre- prison sex right now. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of remembered it a couple of sessions in because I, 
I felt like he was on us so much those first couple of sessions about getting low and wide <laughs> and getting to basketball stands. That was he was huge on that. And people don't understand every session he'd mention that 15, 20 times. You're not low enough, you're not low enough. And he felt like if you weren't in a basketball stance that you weren't ready to play and it was that whole correlation, you're not ready to go, blah, 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 blah. But I used to just shit myself about getting in trouble for not being low enough. So I guess I just overdid it to the point where I was probably almost sitting in a chair. And um I remember that because I got I got shit for that from my teammates for the rest of the year, and especially you, you know, you, you you still mention it to this day, so that was that was that was my welcome. I'm pretty sure that was the first workout because you were on it. I mean, you were on it that first workout. You were moving so well, and you were so hungry to hear what you know Coach Majerus was saying. And uh, man, that was that was that was a great first workout for me to laugh. Do you remember when we did the individual sessions? Whenever we'd we'd, we'd try to, I guess, get an extra hour or two in, which wasn't really allowed. Do you remember what Rick used to do? <laughs> we used to we used to find find the most random gyms oh. <laughs> in Salt Lake City. We wouldn't go and use our Huntsman gym because he was scared that someone would see us going ten minutes over an individual sessions. So we'd be training at like random Mormon churches, the Jewish center, and it was just like yeah, the Jewish community. I center. had no idea what was going. Yep. I'm like, why, why don't we have a we have an arena and a training facility? What what the hell are we doing moving around? I didn't get it then, but you look back now and you're like, yeah, because <laughs> our sessions were going over over time a little bit back then. Yeah, those those three forty minute sessions were really three hour and a half sessions, I think. Yeah, and you were the one that had to usually organize the gyms and drive out and make sure it was available. And if one thing went wrong, you'd hear about it, right? <laughs> every every single time. And uh, yeah, yeah, we always had to go to the Jewish Community Center. We went there a ton. I remember that during that time, and and that in the yeah, church gym that. right across the street from the from the Huntsman Center and. You know, Coach Ramirez would be using all types of language in that place at all different times of day. Oh man, yeah, we'll get to that. That's a laundry list of, of funny stories. I guess we weren't we weren't really that close. We were kind of forced to be close early on, just because you were my taxi driver, essentially helping me run all the errands and get everything right. But then once that was done, we didn't really see a whole lot of each other. You were, as I said, basically Majerus's personal assistant, and and just he had you which we'll touch on a bit a bit later, had you doing all kinds of different things. But I guess our relationship got a bit closer later on that that season and even possibly the next season because you you lived off campus and had a few house parties and kind of invited me over. And, and that was kind of, I finally got out of my shell a little bit and came out and you welcomed me into your home and all that. And that's kind of, you know, when our relationship built, right? Yeah, for sure. Had a couple house parties uh, and you and I started to get a lot closer and hanging out and you know when when coach Majerus would uh when he kind of stepped away from the Utah team that's just when I had more time so I, I think you and I spent a lot more time together too during practice and and different things like that but it was definitely house parties and there were some Sundays I think you and I just would go to the mall or something like that and Rumbies. Yeah, Rumbies. We'd always go to Rumbies and eat. That was one of our spots. Yeah, Rumbies was a Hawaiian kind of teriyaki type joint. It's probably, st- I think it's still there actually on, um, was it 600 North, 900 North, one of those streets? Yeah, I remember that. And then you had to be very careful. You couldn't you couldn't pay for me, obviously, because of the NCAA rules. So that was always interesting. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that, that's when our relationship definitely definitely got, got closer. And I, I kind of saw you as a genuine kind of person. And, and I, I liked the assistance as well, but it was kind of, I guess you were that conduit away from from Majerus breaking my balls. You kind of you know have a have a little bit of a chat just because you were around the team a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was definitely uh, definitely when when I you know when coach stepped away, just had a lot more free time and kind of figured out that I could I could be a normal genuine human being around you guys during the, those times. You know, yeah, for sure. Look, 
We'll get to Majerus now. I mean, may you rest in peace. Obviously, it's always hard to talk about someone that's passed, but in in the in my pod, I, I talk about him being probably still to this day one of the smartest coaches, if not the smartest coach I've ever played for. I think he had an unbelievable feel for the game. We as a team were never underprepared ever, not even close. We we're probably overprepared sometimes, probably even too much because he'd, he'd have he'd know every set they ran, every counter, he'd know their baseline plays, he'd know random game winner plays, he'd know everything. You know, I speak about we would rut- routinely hold opposing star players below their average. So if they averaged 20, they weren't going to get 20 against us. And if they did manage to hit their number, they'd, they'd, sh- they'd be shooting at 20 or 30%. But yeah, I think he's he had an aura, confidence, uh, somewhat you know cockiness about him. But it was, as far as winning basketball games, there was probably no one better at that time. It was probably him and Bobby Knight, right? That were the winningest guys. Um, and we weren't really a top major school, you know, like a, a Kentucky or a UConn, we were kind of, you know, above mid-major, but at times a very hard place to recruit because, you know, the Mormon thing, Salt Lake City, sometimes people don't want to come out there. It's not a huge party school. So it caused some issues with um, recruiting, especially players from the Midwest and the East Coast. But um, how do you remember? I know you loved everything Majerus did basketball-wise. How do, you, how do you remember those days? Yeah, I mean, he was, he was you know, you know, being from Wisconsin, he's from Wisconsin originally, and I got to know him, you know, through those, uh, through his basketball camps in Wisconsin, and we kind of had, had a good relationship. He liked me because I was a, one of the hardest workers always in camp. So, we get we kind of had a good relationship. Then he asked me to come work for him at, at Utah, and it was, for me, it was a, like a dream come true because I knew I wanted to coach, and I was with one of the best coaches in the country at that time, right? I mean, he was just winning games left and right. I'm sure a huge part for you is he was so good at developing post players, right? Bigs. And, you know, he went to the 1998 championship game. And I mean, it was, it was where basically Gonzaga is now. That's what, uh, you know, Coach Majerus had Utah rolling at that time. I mean, he just was just winning nonstop and he was, he was the king of Utah, right? He had a key to the city. He had, you know, he's best friends with Huntsman. Uh, best friends with you know all all the main guys with the jazz. I mean, he was the guy in the state of Utah, and he held us all accountable, didn't he, Andrew? He definitely did. He was like I said, he had that aura, and whether it was at a restaurant sitting with him talking, whether it was him walking into a gym, it was. I speak about in the pod whenever we'd be at training sessions, and and generally. You know, you come to a training session and the training session's at 11 a.m. Or, or 2 p.m., whatever time. Let's say it's 2 p.m. You know, the players get there at 12.30, tape up, stretch, get on the court by 1, 1.30. And, and we're usually, you know, bantering with each other. There's assistant coaches there where we're talking shit, probably getting shots up at 60, 70%, just trying to loosen yourself up and get warm. And I, I still remember to this day, whenever, he, whenever that dude would walk in the gym, whether that door was, you know, 100 feet away from the court or on the road or wherever we were, it was like a pin fucking drop. It was everyone all of a sudden was going 120%. The assistant coaches were standing straight <laughs> up and everyone everyone had a stone look on their face. It was army-like. Oh, you know? yeah. And that's the aura. The aura and the presence that he brought was there's no bullshit here. The, the moment I walk in, you better be working. And I also talked about if, you know, before before training, if you're doing some shooting drills with a coach, it used to be the worst if he would pick your station and come before training and already start railing, you know, you know your footwork's horrible. What are you doing there? What, what's this, you know, and you're, you're already, you're not even really officially in the, in the, the training session yet and he's already on you but he was that was the aura right and and he had that it wasn't only for players it was for assistant coaches i spoke about scott garson maybe saw the inside of his apartment 
five hours a day if he was lucky, yourself as well, the hours that you worked. But um, talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, no, you're 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 100 right. You know, I, I'd usually meet Coach Majerus maybe at the steps or something before practice, and he could show up if practice started at three. He could show up at 3:05, 3:20, But as soon as he walked in that gym, or as soon as he took a step on the stairs, he started coaching from the top of the arena, right? And like you said, Andrew, you just felt that man's presence and you went from 100% to 150. You were flying around at that time as soon as he walked in. You remember he, there was Mike the walk-on who was who took a shot, I think, during uh, one of the practices. No, I don't know. So Mike, Mike the walk-on was just shooting and Coach Majerus took a step in the gym. And at that time, walk-ons should be rebounding for the scholarship guys. And Coach Majerus took a step inside the gym and just started lighting up Mike the walk-on. Mike, you got one effing job here. You get these players better. Don't I ever see you take a shot on this court again. <laughs> and so he had little Mike running around, you know, rebounding after that. But you're right, his, his presence, his aura, you know, everybody listened to him and looked up to him. And, I mean, he did absolutely no wrong at that place and um you could just feel like like the or the greatness around him yeah and then it's funny you say the coaching as soon as he got in the building do you remember i don't know if you remember this story but he, he showed up late for for a practice i think 20 30 minutes into the session and we're at the huntsman and he came in through the the one entry near the near the i think the main basket he came through that tunnel area there and, and it was snowing outside so he had he had um i think he had timberlands or boots on for the snow and then as he's walking onto the court, he wasn't dressed. He still had his coat on. So he starts, as he's undressing and changing from uh, his boots to his basketball shoes and shorts, he was coaching. So <laughs> so for like ha- half the session, he's got one sock on and one shoe on. <laughs> then he's got a sock on his hand that he's about to put on and then saw something and starts cussing someone out. And it took him like 30 minutes to fully be dressed. And you're just like, this dude's nuts. Like, and he, he, like, like you said, once he walked in, it didn't matter what was going on. The roof could have been falling down. There could have been rain coming through a hole in the bit. He didn't care. He was like locked in on what is this guy doing? What are you doing? What's going on here? Um, I also spoke about the shirt tucked in rule, right? Where you had to, we were big on tucking your shirt in. And I remember he used to say, you know, if your shirt untucks, you're running. Yeah. And if you're a teammate and you see your teammate's shirt untucked and you don't tell him you're running with him. Yeah, he was he, he was relentless about all the stuff that, you know, he didn't do also because he never had his shirt tucked in for any days of practice. But I, I do remember that practice where he, you know, he was coaching with a sock on his hand. It looked like he had a little hand puppet or something yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for 30 yeah. minutes. And for the listeners, that was like every day, like at least for the players, some shit would happen like that with him, that he would do something crazy, he would do something funny. I mean, you've probably got stories 10 times as great as that because you were around him kind of in a more intimate setting doing errands for him. But man, it was it was always fun to get away from from those training sessions as hard as they were and just, just actually sit back and laugh kind of at his expense or for what he did. And I, I guess that's kind of how we stuck together considering how, how tough he was on us. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that's all, all it was is that all of us, including the assistant coaches, trainer, all the players, walk-ons, everybody, managers, everybody had to come together just because his wrath was coming at anybody at any time. 
And like you said, we could laugh about it and joke about it later on, but we all had to come together to kind of all our force just against his his force because he was hard and he pushed everyone to the limit every single day. Yeah, he did. And I think, you know, going to a little bit of a negative, I think sometimes it went past the line, obviously. You know, there were times where he would, I guess, he was so passionate and so fiery on that court. It didn't matter what was going on in your off-court life, you wouldn't get a pass. And I think it, there were a lot of players, you know, he developed a lot of players, but I, I feel like he also probably hindered a lot of players. And at times, he would take your confidence away, especially if you were a freshman or a sophomore. I feel like with 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 Coach Majerus, you you kind of, after you've been with him for a couple of years, he gave you kind of a bit more freedom. You know, I remember Nick Jacobson, you know, couldn't take a bad shot because he was a senior. It was like, and and then you take the same shot next play down and you get cast out and you're like, what the hell's going on? You know, it's the same shot. And that was, I guess, respect and time and presence earned and he would give you a leeway, but you had to be there and take his wrath for two or three years. But on the flip side, I remember we had two players, one Ryan Wirch from Wisconsin and 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 Stefan Zimmerman from, from Utah. They were both I believe they were both Mr. Basketball from their state. Is that correct? Wirch was close. I don't know if he was Mr. Basketball, but he was close. He was definitely one of the best players from Wisconsin at that time. And Zimmerman was for sure. Yeah, he was, yeah. He was a Mr. Basketball. And look, those two guys were prime examples of, of guys that I think he he broke. You know, he, he completely, he, he broke those two guys. Um, I remember, you know, Stefan Zimmerman wasn't, he was a very good player. He had a lot of shit to him. He had a, a very good footwork for a big man, but he wasn't, he just couldn't get in, sh- in proper physical shape. He wasn't overweight. He was just, just pudgy, never really spent a lot of time in the weight room. And, you know, I don't know if you remember, but Majerus would just wait for him to make one mistake at practice and then correlate that to him being out of shape and then be like, take your cheerleader tits and, and go and run 20 up and backs up the, up the arena bowl. Um, and he'd have to he'd have to run up and back, and, and people think I'm exaggerating. So that would happen, and 30 minutes later, you'd be doing a different drill, and you look over, and this dude's still running the stairs. <laughs> You're just like, yep. when is he coming back? I think I got five up and backs one session, and I was like about to die. <laughs> this poor kid, and that was his that was his experience of Utah basketball basically every day. No, no, no question, it was like as soon as Coach Jarris walked in that day, looks at Zimmerman. Zimmerman's like just walking to the free throw line or something after he's working out. And he's like, Zimmerman, see you, buddy. 50, you know, send him on 50, 50 <laughs> up, up and backs up the stairs. And, and Wirtz, he was pretty tough on too. So, I, I agree with that. There was, there was some, some guys for sure that really had a hard time. You know, Wirtz, I think, transferred to University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. And then Zimmerman, I think he just was done with basketball after that. Oh, no, he went rogue. You don't, you don't remember? I mean, I touched on it a little bit on the pod. So he, once Majerus had resigned and, and Kerry Rupp had taken over, we had those Christmas holidays. I don't know if you remember, and he, he didn't come back. So he, we didn't know where the hell he went. <laughs> and he, I, I believe he went up into the hills or he went somewhere. I think his dad had at a cabin or something and just went, he just disappeared and went caveman status for, I think, I think a few months. And then we finally, I think we saw him in February or March and he had, a, he had like a beard past his past his neck and yeah he went he went full on man like, i think he really was affected by it and you know he kind of he kind of disappeared for a bit which was kind of strange yeah oh yeah no i i i remember i remember a little of that and then and uh i mean another guy that was obviously affected that we both know really well is too is big red chris jackson he had, he had a tough time with coach too and he was definitely really hard on a lot of guys and and uh and it'd just be random. Like it, sometimes it would be, we kind of joked about it. Hopefully it's you this week. Hopefully it's not me. And sometimes he'd be on you for 
you know, six or seven straight sessions and sometimes he wouldn't talk to you for, for, for a week or two as far as getting after the year. It was just kind of if he saw something that you were doing that was crazy, it was you set your week up bad because you knew the, the next five or six days he'd be on your ass. For sure. I, I remember one specific instance even with you, right, where uh, I think you turned the ball over and Majerus just lost it, right? And he threw like – like the he threw the water bottle right at you, right? Oh no, it was for a box out. Yeah, so I, t- I talk about this. So so basically, I was guarding Jonas Longvard at the time from Denmark, and he was Jonas in the living far- good. Yeah, he was in. The, yeah, he Majerus used to call him Living Good. He didn't get his name right ever. <laughs> the whole time he was there, but like Jonas was in the the weak side corner, and I was help D, and I was on the block, and you know pointing my pistols, and and remember we had a rule we had to you had to head check. Oh yeah. When a shot went up, you head check and see if your man's coming. And basically the rule was if, if your man was crashing, you take a step towards him outside the paint, you crack him and then you go and get the rebound. And if he stays in the perimeter or gets back on D, then you, you don't take a step out of the paint. You try to get the rebound. So I don't know who shot it, but they shot the biggest brick of all time. So of <laughs> course, they shoot it from the opposite 45. It goes over my head. Jonas doesn't come. I head check. He stays in the corner. Over my head right into his hands in the corner and Majerus was sitting on the on the basket stanchion on the bottom of it, the middle baskets. And it takes him, you know, he, he says something like, you know, Bogo, what the fuck are you doing? You know, box out, blah, 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 blah. And I, first time I fired back, I said, I, I head checked, he didn't come, the ball went over my fucking head. Like, what do you want me to do? I can't jump 20 feet in the air. And so then he he starts trying to get up off that stanchion, which took him about 30 seconds because he's a big dude and they're only about a foot off the ground. So they're kind of awkward for anyone to get off of. And then he had a water bottle in his hand and just like, fuck you. What did you say? Fuck you. <laughs> and and throws, the, throws, throws the bottle at me. And I was already, he was railing me already for a month straight and I was taking it, taking it, taking it. And the bottle was never going to do me any damage. It landed about two or three feet in front of me and rolled, hits my foot. And then that, you know, that's when everything else happens. So I'll let you finish the rest of that story. And then you walked out of practice, right? Well, first I walked towards him. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I yeah, was yeah. like, I, ha- I have a free pass to, <laughs> I don't think I was going to punch him because I was like, if I hit this dude, he could, <laughs> he could drop and might not see him again. But I was going to get in his face for sure. And I think a bunch of the assistants grabbed me and, and kind of petitioned me towards the locker room. And I, I don't know if you remember, I basically said, you know, fuck you, I'm going to Europe. I'm signing yeah. to Europe. You know, because because I was getting those European deals, which were pretty big numbers um, before I came to the you know university, but still, because I gave my word, I wanted to come. So I feel like I was getting the the raw end of the stick. And it was Christmas holidays. I went back to my to my uh, apartment, and I don't know if you remember, but the they they moved us for the Christmas holidays that, that week to one a different building from my regular dorm room. So n- none of you could find me. No one could find me <laughs> for like a good. I wouldn't answer my phone, and I think Kerry Rupp finally found me at like midnight, and um kind of talk me off the ledge. No, I, I, I remember that for sure because as soon as one of the assistants was kind of bringing you to the locker room, Majerus went over to Rupp right away. He's like, you go find him and you make sure he's he's all right and everything's good and we can get this kid back. Yeah. And, yeah, I remember that. So then I came in the next day and that was what was so wacky about about Rick was, so I come in a training the next day. I think it was a game day and we had shoot around in the morning at the hyper at the kind of the student courts and um, I'm like walking in ready to get cast out and he didn't say a word to me. He he. I got on the baseline, joined the drill, did not say one thing for me. And he, he actually left me alone for maybe four or five days. It was the longest, longest amount of time he didn't, he didn't cuss me out. And then I think not long, not long after that, we, we went to the NIT, I think. And that was a whole, a whole different game, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh. Well, the first one, the first game of the year, remember we were playing University of Minnesota. 
And they had Jason Humphreys, who was Chris, another Chris freshman. Humphreys. Yeah, Chris Humphreys. Chris Humphreys. That's formerly Chris Humphreys Kardashian. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chris, Chris Humphreys. Yeah, we're playing them, and we win that game. And he had he had an okay game, but you just dominated him. You had like seventeen points, nineteen rebounds. And I remember just after that game, Coach Majerus talking to the staff, saying, "This Andrew Bogut is the real deal." And Holy cow, guys, we, we got ourselves somebody here. And uh, he was really fired up after that game because you dominated Mulatto. I mean, uh, <laughs> dominated Humphreys. Do you, do you remember the film session that we had right before that game? Yeah, he called him Mulatto. He basically was saying, so this, you know, Chris Humphreys is just, he's a tan white boy essentially, right? But he, he, would, he was saying, Bogut, there's this big black guy. He's going he's gonna to kick your ass if you don't blah, blah, blah. And just, that was the whole lead up to the Minnesota game, right? So then we finally watched film and I'm like, where is this dude? <laughs> Watching the film, I'm like, the guy in my position is not black. <laughs> what is he talking about? And then I get, was it you or someone said, uh, you know, he's, he's white. <laughs> someone told him. Or I think it was Richard Cheney. Richard Cheney goes, coach, that guy's white right there. And Majerus just lost it. He's like, he's he's effing mulatto, okay? His dad's black and his, his mom's white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, nah, he, he's not. <laughs> he's not. That was that was Rick. He had it. He had it in his head. And I just I just remember, yeah, coming into that game, kind of nervous, just because I'm looking for this this big black dude who's just going to destroy me. And um, I'm like, they're starting centers. They're starting big men. Are both white guys? <laughs> like, what's going on? But <laughs> but that that was uh, that was Rick to a T. But. I mean, yeah, after that bottle incident, it was, it was, I guess it was an opportunity where I finally had to, to push back a little bit on, on, on everything going on. And, and he was, look, he was pretty hard on me. He, I guess you could argue that he saw a lot of potential in me and, and, and was like, I need to push this kid. But I mean, some of it was, was pretty crazy. You know, it was, as, as you said, um, turning the ball over. What did he say to me? Well, he's. A, I think he said, Andrew. I don't know what they call call that in your country, Australia, but in this country, that's an effing turnover. <laughs> when you, yeah. when you turn it over during practice. Yeah, and that was that was every day. It was you know, um, I got I, I regret I regret even recruiting you. Go back to Australia. Yeah. Who the hell were your high school coaches? They're a bunch of idiots. Or like, and it was just every day, and and then uh, you know a lot of C bombs and and all that, and and that was just that was what it was. So it was it was. You know, it was, it's actually nice hearing from you what you said that he said that after the Minnesota game because I mean it would have been good for him to, to tell us that every now and then. I know it wasn't in his mo, but you just, you just felt like he hated you at times. And I guess when you're oh, yeah. 18, 19 years old, going through adolescence, growing into a man, you kind of you're like, you know, how do we handle this? But I guess the funniest thing out of all that was he would motherfuck you and call you every name under the sun, call your parents idiots your family loses they raised you wrong whatever it was and then he would step off the court after a session literally one centimeter off that line put his arm around you and be like you know so Bogota, is everything okay you need anything uh, how's, how's your family are, are you homesick are you, are you settling in okay and i'm just like i remember the first time he did it to me and i'm like this guy's crazy man like this guy's certifiable like, this is crazy he just he lit me up for two straight hours called me every name under the sun go back to australia and then it was like he just switched off and that was that and i think he did that with a lot of guys i think he used to overcompensate the off the court shit just because i think he knew that he was he was towing the line a lot on the court right oh no 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 question i mean that's exactly him do a t you know cuss you out and then one step off the court Bogut, you know, you, you, you want to, are you hungry? Can I, can I uh, take you somewhere to get something to eat or can Cody go get you something or can I do this for you? It was, 
it was incredible. Oh man, that is that's really funny. Yeah, and and the media, the media as well were like he had like I wouldn't say he had him fooled because he I think he had a good heart deep down inside, but it just didn't come out a lot. But like the media would just be like they hear these stories about him saying crazy shit and doing crazy stuff at training, and no one would believe it because they're like, nah, not Rick. Like he's great with us. He's he's humorous. He treats us well. He, he's offering the media donuts and coffee and. You know, they were they, they they didn't know any better, but to the people behind the scenes like us, we we're like, you know, on eggshells most of the time. Uh, he, had, he had everyone scared at the U for their for their lives every single day of what, what was gonna happen, his wrath. The other the other one was right before Christmas, you remember playing at Colorado? Yeah, yeah, they had Harrison, the big fella. Yep. Yeah, yep. the big fella Harrison and free throw box out. Yeah, there was the last blackout right before halftime and coach came in at halftime and just Lost it on you and almost remember almost passed out right there. Yeah, I do. Yeah, he he lit into me and he took two or three steps back and I think a few of you, a few of the coaches caught him. Right? It was me and Scott Garson. Yeah, that went and just kind of held him up here so he didn't he didn't fall over. But yeah, that was that was another little little scary time with Coach Majerus. But he lost it on that block out too. Harrison end a half and we end up beating Colorado pretty good that game too. At Colorado, yeah, big win, big win. But that was yeah, that was that was interesting. Um, I guess there's let's touch on some funnier things. I mean, he he used to do so much funny, quirky things. Sometimes borderline abusive, borderline not. I mean, I guess the funnier ones for me were the ones always in the film room because he would we'd be in, we'd be in the film room, mind you, sometimes for an hour, hour and a half, two hours. Um, so you have to think people like yourself and. Scott Garson and the coaches would have to prepare so much film, hours and hours and hours, in case he wanted a certain clip. But I mean, he would—he'd be in a big leather chair. We'd all be in hard seats, kind of paying attention, making sure you're not tuning out. And I remember mid-film, he falls asleep, just starts snoring, <laughs> and 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 everyone's looking at each other like, "What do we do?" <laughs> Someone who wants to wake him up, and that was your job. And then you got the good. Tell, tell us the there's a laser pointer story and the um, whiteboard eraser story. They're the two the two ones that I remember. I'll I'll tell the. Uh Laser pointer one, yeah. So we were uh, sitting there and we just turned off the lights. And my job was just to make sure, you know, Coach from Jarrett's had a laser pointer that was ready to go and he could point stuff out and cuss these guys out with, right? So I gave him this laser pointer and he starts pressing this, the button and it wasn't going on the on the film and on the screen. And Coach from Jarrett's just lights up into me, right? Like you got one effing job make sure i have a laser pointer that works why doesn't it work look at this thing and as he's pressing it it's going right to his chest so the laser pointer is on it's just going right to his chest so all i do is kind of walk over grab the laser pointer and i flip it around and then it, it works right on the screen so the laser pointer was working all fine and dandy but coach majerus was uh pointing it the wrong way and he didn't say anything he just kept on going about his business he yeah, didn't say, say oh, sorry <laughs> <laughs> yeah and there was a similar one with a whiteboard eraser he um he drew up some some plays on the whiteboard and then he's got the he's, he's got the, the the pen in one hand the whiteboard pen the marker and then he's got the, the the eraser in the other hand and then he goes to erase the board and he's looking for the whiteboard eraser but it's in his hand and just lights into you like cody you got one fucking where is my whiteboard eraser and you're just like it's, it's in your hand coach Oh, oh, oh yes, 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 and then just continued on. <laughs> it's just like all he said is, "We need, we need more erasers. We're, we need more erasers." Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you're just like, "Oh, thanks, coach." Um, but I mean, they're the kind of things that we, you know, as, as team and coaches used to just talk about and just absolutely <laughs> laugh. Do you remember when, like the the LA boys, was Cheney, Drisdom, and and uh, Hawkins? 
and who else? Markson. They'd, they'd always, we'd be in a huddle at the end of practice after being berated for two hours. And one of these dudes would go behind him and start blowing on his hair. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that, but I remember that. Yeah. I remember that clear as day because then you just, just, I'm standing on the side that Majerus looking at and I'm like ready to piss myself laughing because he's half bolting, his hair's flapping up in the air and, you know, Chaney's just blowing. And those guys <laughs> just didn't care. And you're just like, man, like this is, it was awesome looking back, but in the moment, you know, my ass started tightening up. You're just trying not to even even give a murmur of a smile because he's going to then lean into you for the next week. <laughs> but, um, absolutely hilarious times. Yeah, that was the the best part for me is I could I always had like a basketball in my hand, so I could always put the basketball in front of my face anytime I was laughing. You guys always had to use your jerseys and lift those up anytime Coach Majerus yeah, doing something. I guess no one was the thing with 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 Coach Majerus was. He was his sessions were a thing of beauty for the most part, outside of the getting into guys and swearing and yelling and carrying on sometimes. But he 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 was he was big on spacing. He was big on breaking things down. A very good teacher of things at, at times, probably too harsh on guys. But he he knew the game backwards, and you couldn't you could never argue that. So we used to get a lot of guest coaches would come through that place. You know, we we even we even have NBA coaches sometimes come through assistant coaches. And I mean, he was friends with George Carl and and different Doc Rivers, different NBA coaches would pass through sometimes. But we'd get a lot of high school coaches coming in. So, I mean, you remember this one very, very well. And I remember it too, because it kind of took the, the spotlight of us as players during training. But there's a bunch of high school coaches in there and they'd always have their notebooks out and writing down all our plays and, and what I remember that one time, but I think he did it a lot of a lot of the time. But what would he do to those guys generally? Um, so it was, if you want to tell that this one, it was the Utah High School Association came out for um, one of our practices, and all the, all the coaches coaches were there jotting it down. It was you know one of our underneath out of bounds plays. Do you want do you want to finish tell that story? What he said or oh man, he just. But any plays really, he sees he sees all these coaches up in the stands. I mean, how many were there? Probably fifty. You know, 40, oh, 50. at least there, there was like there was at least hundred and fifty coaches there. Yeah, so he he sees them all with their you know you know the, the the standard basketball notebook that's the material of the basketball, and everyone's writing down everything Majerus says, and and just for some reason he stops mid explaining this and. He's talking to us, but them, but he's looking at us and saying, you know, you you see these coaches up in up in the stands writing down all my fucking plays. Yeah, they go home and they jack themselves off to my plays. They have no idea about execution. They have no idea about time and score and spacing and, and what it takes to put these plays together. And and these coaches are sitting up there like looking at each other like, is he why is he going at us for? And that's just that's just what he was. Like these guys are going home and jacking off to my plays and they have no idea. They have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> just like these were these were guests welcomed by our university and just go, just starts railing at them. These guys have no idea what it takes to win. It's all about defense and rebounding. These guys just care about these stupid plays. <laughs> I remember that and I was just I, I looked up and I'm looking in the in the crowd and these these coaches heads are on a swivel. They're like too scared to say anything, you know. It was crazy. Do you do you remember the the time Dr Dr. Hill came in for practice? Nah, I don't remember that one. Go ahead. So, Dr. Hill, you might have been... His athletic director? Yep. Yeah, the athletic director, Chris Hill, who's one of the best athletic directors ever, right? Yep. Dr. Hill, you know, walks in and sits down to watch one point of the practice. And Coach Majerus just said, all right, bring it in. And Bogues, you know how it was when Coach Majerus said, bring it in. Everyone flew in there. 
right? Right to right to talk, to, right to listen to what he's got to say. I mean, a dead sprint to get right to uh, as close to Coach yep. Majerus as you could. And he goes, all right, you guys, and he points up at Dr. Hill. He points up, and you know, he always used his middle finger when he pointed. He points up at Dr. Hill and he goes, you guys see what happens to bad coaches? They become athletic directors. <laughs> and it was just out of nowhere for no reason, just just brought that out. And then Dr. Hill heard him, kind of just stood up and walked right out. And Coach Majerus just kept on coaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they didn't have the best relationship, I don't think. I think it was um, there was a bit of back and forth. At least when I was there, there, there wasn't a whole lot of good history there. I think, you know, Majerus probably always demanding more funding and more this and more that. And I think Dr. Hill had to put him in his place a few times. So, they, they definitely had an interesting relationship. Yeah, I was in a couple of those meetings. They were they were not fun meetings to be in. Yeah, and that's and Majerus was, you know, he was he was direct to whoever it was, whether he was talking to a twelve year old kid or a you know a fifty year old man. It didn't he didn't really sugarcoat things and probably was say things that weren't appropriate. I mean, my look, I don't think he could coach today. In my opinion, I think he could coach X's and O's wise and basketball wise and IQ wise. I think he's got no issue. I think with the way the world's going with um, kind of how he condone himself, I think he'd really struggle with social media, someone recording a session, that that stuff getting out. But um, you could argue that's a shame with the way society's going. But at the same time, I think you know there were times he, he went over the line. But um, getting on from that, I guess a big part, a big kind of turning point for me during that season was the, the Yukon game. I don't, you, you obviously remember that one very, very well because you've brought it up numerous times and it, it brings another funny Majerus story along with it. But I remember we go to the NIT because we, we beat Minnesota so that we go to the semifinals and play against um, Texas Tech, Bobby Knight. And we, we didn't play that well, but we went down to them by 10 or 11, but we didn't play that well. And um, I didn't have a great game. I wasn't horrible. But then get to UConn, they ended up losing. So we play them in the 3-4 and it was my first exposure to a to a big big time school, a big major school. They're all they're all McDonald's high school Americans. They had a lot of great players. I think Ben Gordon, Mekaroka Four, Josh Moon, and Mekaroka Four was the first time I'd I'd seen him and just absolutely kicked my ass. I mean, they ran the same misdirection cross screen play what six straight times on me and dunk 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 dunk. I just couldn't figure this play out because it was just they had counters to it, and then I tried to cheat at one play, and it was a lob dunk, and then I went under, and then he comes over the top and dunks on me. Then I go over, and he goes under and dunks on me. And I was just like, "What the hell is going on?" And I guess we would have went over it in in film, and I don't know. I just just couldn't figure that one out, and um, that was kind of a bit of a turning point for me of of a wake up call of. You know, I thought I was the man at that point. I was doing pretty well for a freshman, and like you said, had seventeen or eighteen and eighteen against Minnesota, and and that was that was a welcome to to big college basketball. But then Majerus, I'll let you explain it because you tell a great story with it. But he was that that next week was was Bogut week. Oh, it was it was relentless on you right after that. But yeah, we uh, we lost to Texas Tech, and then we had Thanksgiving that day. Remember and. And we practice three times on Thanksgiving, right? And then we all show up to the to the team dinners that day, and we're, we're the only yep. team that has sweats, and everybody else is dressed nice and Thanksgiving. And we were all of us are just dead and done and tired. And then the next day, we play UConn. Like you said, they, they got us. They dunked it over and over again. And uh, the next week of practice, and I just remember Coach Majerus was just relentless on you what do you say hey bogut what do you think about this and then just acted like he was dunking on you like 10 different times like dunk dunk 
dunk, dunk. What do you think about Okafor, Bogut? Dunk, 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 dunk. Yeah, he actually said, how did, <laughs> did you remember his balls on your, on your head? <laughs> I'm just like, man, because whenever, whenever I'd make a mistake at training or practice, I'd, I'd miss something or drop my head. Hey, Bogut, you okay? You remember this? Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> yeah. That's Okafor dunking on you. I'm just like, what the? F-? And it was like the next day and the next day. So I was just like, we need to hurry up and just play this next game. I think the next game was against Stony Brook, wasn't it? Where he sent you on the, um, didn't you have to go on a 10 hour round trip or something to get some film or something of them? Yeah, so uh, Stony Brook, that was actually the game right when we got there first. We played them first when we got okay, to New yeah. But as soon as we got to, yeah, we flew into New York. I had to drive seven hours to give this team back their film. So we landed at like 1 a.m. And Coach Majerus had one of the walk-ons go with me, Brett Sordle. So I drove seven hours to return this film. And then I drove seven hours back. So it was like a 14-hour trip. And then I, I got back just in time for the Stony Brook game. But that was, that was, that's the kind of stuff you do in, you know, in my, fun profession at that time. Now everything's digital and easier, but that was a videotape that I needed to return. Drank a lot of soda. A lot of soda, yeah. Typical American, right? The big gulps. Yeah. A few other ones. You have the Britton Johnson story. That was That's a pretty funny one. Yeah. So, were you there at that time? Nah, Britton was the year before me. He, I heard a lot about him, but obviously a, a, a you know, Mormon kid, very religious, right? Um, but he, uh, yeah, he was gone. He, he had left after I'd got there. Yeah, he was drafted by the Magic or made the Magic team for that first one or two years. And, I mean, heck of a player. He was an All-American, could have gone anywhere in the country and chose to come to Utah, play for Coach Majerus. And, like, an unbelievable player, right? He was player of the year in the in the WAC when Utah was in the WAC. And just an unbelievable dominant player. Really good, really athletic. Made a ton of money playing, playing basketball. And um, Coach Majerus, after Britain's career was over, I mean, after his career was over at Utah and he was with the Magic and, uh, you know, Coach Majerus is like, you know what, this Britton Johnson and he's talking to your team, Bogues, right? He goes, you know, Britton Johnson, guys, he would have been a heck of a player, would have been a much better player if he would have done a little bit of less of this, talking about praying and done a lot more of this. He was talking about shooting. If yeah, done a little less, bit less more. Pr- yeah, and a lot more shooting. He would have been a way better player and just crushed a, a kid that, did nothing but, you know, work his butt off for Coach Majerus. So that was that was always a fun, fun story. And uh, I I talk to Britton Johnson still now to this day, and I I uh, tell him that uh, every couple times I see him. So it's a fun one. I guess the end of this is is Majerus's last coach game. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, we were playing at Air Force. At Air Force, he he went after me again that game. I think. Oh yeah, um, at halftime. And that was – it was an interesting time. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much of the details you know now, um, but the way I saw it, you know, he coached that game. I think we lost that game, right? Yeah, um, we, we lost Force that game. For the first time, had a big that could shoot, so it, it kind of completely changed the way we guarded them because we usually had success against them, but the big brought the big out, and then they, they were just getting back cuts and whatever, getting whatever they wanted. And it was my first experience in playing one of those small schools that just are methodical and just run the same thing for the whole shot clock. So – I struggled in that game, but I remember I remember getting back to to Utah. It was we had a week off to our, our big rivalry game with BYU, where you're at now, and that was on the Saturday. And then I think Monday morning they pull us out of they pull all of us out of class at like eight thirty a.m. nine a.m. and and they bring us in and they basically tell us that 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 um, Coach Majerus had a heart attack and that he he was gone right. So it was 
yeah, I mean, we didn't know any better and who are we to question that at that point? And we we literally never saw him again. That was that was kind of the, the disappointing thing for, for, for at least me and a lot of the guys on the team was I remember one of the guys on the team asked, well, can we go see him in hospital? And we were told, no, he's he's gotten on a, on a plane and flown. Where did, where did he fly? Was it Wisconsin? He flew somewhere. He flew to Cali, like uh, Santa Barbara, I think. Yeah. So then I guess the, yeah. the next question was, well, if you had a heart attack, why did you get on a plane? So then there was there was a couple of guys that were kind of like, oh, what, what's really going on here? And I'm not sure what, what the exact details were, but from what I've heard, we played Weber State a month before Lance Allred. I don't know if you remember him, but he he was he's the first I, I guess deaf player to play in the NBA. He used to wear hearing devices. I mean, fantastic story. I know he's got his own book, so I've told people to go read that because it's just a great story. But he was at the University of Utah, and I guess he left because Majerus was was on him too much and said some very inappropriate things. From what I understand, he then transfers to Weber State. We play them in a in a local rivalry game leading up to conference and the Salt Lake Tribune. I'm not sure if you remember, the Salt Lake Tribune does a full page spread on Lance Ored and he basically spills the beans, right, on on everything that he, he thinks Rick did to him. And I guess they'd investigated it back when Lance transferred a couple of years before and found Majerus, everything was okay, we don't have enough evidence. But I think the Tribune article rehashed some, some old wounds and, and the school, from what I understood, was putting together an investigation again. And this is my understanding. I could be wrong, but basically when and told Coach Majerus, we're investigating you and the NCAA's told us to. And he basically said, if, if you launch this investigation, I'm going tomorrow. I mean, I'm not sure if there's, you know, if that's correct, but that's that's kind of what I got looking into it years later. Yep. I kind of I kind of heard a lot of the same things on my end with Coach Majerus that, that, that there was a lot happening through the university and yeah he ended up just flying to Santa Barbara and getting out of there and I think the next time we spoke to him as a team was right at the Mountain West Conference tournament if you remember that or was in it bef- or was it before was it before the to- that tournament or before the NCAA tournament I thought it was in the Mountain West Conference tournament just I think it was right before our first game. Might have been, yeah. I could be wrong, yeah. It was a conference call in that conference room where our uh, bas- yep. basketball ops guy kind of organized it and didn't tell anyone. And yeah, I, remember I remember Kerry Rupp wasn't wasn't too happy about it, who was then the coach. But um, yeah, I guess that was it was disappointing the way it ended. And we never really got a formal goodbye. And I know there was a lot of guys that were emotional. A lot of guys, myself included, came to that school, not because it was the University of Utah, but came to that school because it was coach Rick Majerus, you know? So, you know, that was kind of disappointing, but that was just one of the things we had to deal with. And then we ended up bouncing back and we ended up winning the the Mountain West Conference tournament, get an automatic bid, um, go to the uh, go to the first round of the tournament, lose to a pretty good Boston College team at the time, but it kind of set the scene for, for the next season. We had a lot of young guys, a lot of freshmen and sophomore in, the, in that group. So I think it, it kind of, it worked out pretty well. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, that was the first time you played uh, in the Bucks gym right there, that Boston College game. The Bradley Center, yeah. Yep, the Bradley Center. And it's funny how, how it all goes full circle. But um, look, I, I guess we'll finish just on Majerus. I guess, like I said, Majerus coach, players and staff, I think we all have a lifetime bond. And it's kind of, I see, I don't know Keith Van Horn at all. Never really met him, played against him once or twice. But he, he he went through this phase on on Twitter where he was posting kind of Rick Majerus isms where he'd he'd just put random stories kind of like the one that you said you know pray less shoot more that kind of funny stuff and it kind of you have an automatic bond with someone like that because you all have the same stories and I guess whenever we catch up whether it's today or in twenty years no matter what we catch up for Majerus 
stories will come up. For sure. And that's, that's one thing that's pretty cool that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in Utah still. And so I get to see a lot of Utah people and we're just telling stories that, and we haven't even have a strength coach right now, um, that worked for him at St. Louis. Um, so I get to hear a lot of St. Louis stories too. So it's, it's pretty neat that, uh, all the kind of guys that were under Majerus's kind of umbrella, all uh, have great stories and, and like you said, kind of our, our brothers for life deal that we all get to kind of share things and hear here and and uh, stick together because we all, we all we all did it together. <laughs> oh, that's it, that's it. But um, all right, that wraps up part one of the Q and A with Cody. Thanks for joining us, Cody. Of course, yeah. No, thanks, thanks so much for having me. So awesome to talk to you, Bogues. And this this podcast has been awesome, man. I love listening to it. And I know this thing's going to be huge as you keep on going through it. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Thanks again to Cody Figa from the BYU Men's Basketball Program for coming on and giving a bit of color about my freshman year. Some great Majera stories in there. Cody will join us again for the My Journey sophomore episode. But moving on from that, my freshman year ends. I finished class in April, May area fly back home to Australia for national team camp. So I get an invite to the Australian Boomers men's national team in 2004, preparing for the Athens Olympics in in August. So a huge honor to be a part of even just the camp. So that was kind of the next step I had. But leaving the University of Utah, I didn't know if I'd be back. I, I didn't know if I'd, uh, after the year I had with Rick Majerus and the ups and the downs and the turmoil and the abuse and all that kind of stuff, I, I honestly was considering leaving what did leaving mean? Look, I was projected to be a, a late first round pick, early second round pick in the NBA draft. I had numerous European offers on the table and it was one of those things where it was, it was a crossroad. Do I come back? I, I knew we were in the hunt for a new coach, which I thought was going to be Kerry Rupp, which was a the head assistant and I liked him. He recruited me and that would have been a, a big positive to get me back quickly. But then we um, we obviously went and hired a, a new coach during that off season. So there was a crossroad. I, I kind of didn't know if I'm going to now be told what I want to hear and be sold a used car and then get there. And it's the same old story of, of, of being, you know, in a situation that's just hard every day. And that was something I had to think through. So we'll get to that further down the track, but that wraps up the rogue bogues, my journey, episode four, University of Utah freshman year. A, lo- a lot of fun stuff in there. A lot of great Majerus stories. Look, the, the Majerus stories probably need to be a separate podcast on their own because some of them go on for days and 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 there's there's a lot of good, quirky, funny, brutal, harsh stuff in there. We got through as much as we could, myself and Cody. Hope you enjoyed those. I know we'll get a lot of listeners tuning in from Salt Lake City, Utah. So I've always appreciated all your support from that end of the world. Remember, Rogue Bogues. On all your social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, wherever it may be. Tell a friend, tell your auntie, tell someone you hate. It's a great podcast. So tune in next time. Thank you.